Last week's show ended with uh, a pretty, it was shocking, uh, well, not shocking to you, to, of course, to those who have, you, who have read the books, but uh, it ended with the death of Flint uh, of a heart attack, which is something that's an odd thing to happen in these books. Um, either people are virtually immortal, which is boring as shit, or they die heroic deaths killing a dragon or something like that um that's one thing i've always liked about uh dragon lance is that uh the characters aren't aren't superhuman they're very much flawed and human and uh vulnerable uh bad things happen to them and um all those things and flint was old and his uh his demise was a, a beautiful moment in the books i always as again i've always uh, said that weiss and hickman are so good at writing bad things um or bad events and it wasn't necessarily even a bad event. Um, Flint from the beginning had was pretty much my favorite character. Like I'm always been partial to dwarves, um, and I always played them when I played uh, when I played Dungeons and Dragons. I always play them I, in, in any medium where there's a dwarf. I will play the dwarf. Um, they're tougher. There's few. There's not as many. There's not as many complications. We're roughly the same height. There you go. Um, I, I, I knew that was going to be coming, so I figured I had that one off at the past. At the past, I mean. Um, but Flint, he was uh, he was the grandfather of the Dragonlance series. Like he, you know, he was always crotchety and, and upset, and especially with Tasselhoff, and would get uh, mad. But he also genuinely loved everybody, especially Tannis. And I went back and reread. Uh, not all the parts of the book. Uh, there is a book called Kindred Spirits by Mark Anthony and Ellen Parath. And it's, or Porath, I, I can't remember. Um, I would really love to talk to those uh, two individuals because I to tell them they have written one of the best fantasy books I've ever read. Like it's, there's something about it that's, it's like a sweater. You know, I'll read it and all the parts, it has the, it actually has Tannis's birth in it. He's being, uh, you know, he's being, Delivered by this ancient elf midwife who's actually part human herself, to her name's Eldilea. And it's a beautiful part of the book, even though it's very sad. And then there's a part I wanted to read here because it's, you know, I thought, I think it's a beautiful part and I think it's pertinent. And I will discuss that that book on this show sooner or later. It's probably as, as like an hour one shot, maybe. It's not very long, it's about 350 pages. But this is after, um, after Tannis is taken by Solar Star and the Speaker of the Suns, um, it flashes to uh, Flint in Solace, quote, Far to the north, a small town slept in darkness. It was a town of wooden houses, most tucked high among the embracing branches of ancient towering trees, joined by footbridges, footbridges high above the ground. And one of the few houses that stood upon the ground, of course, and the only one with a dim light still glowing between the open shutters of its windows, a figure sat alone. He was short, a human child's height, but thick-limbed and broad-shouldered, and coarse whiskers curled down his chest. He sat at a table, turning a piece of wood over, over, in it, over and over in his hands. I think that's one of the best things. Is that that makes Flint stand out? Is that his his medium? To, what was favorite for him to work with was wood. You know, dwarves are in any fantasy are always set forth as, you know, metal, you know, always working in metals, especially steel and making weapons and things like that. Flint was a was essentially a jewelry maker in a lot of ways and a carver. He loved to carve. Um, 
but we're back at it. Quote, he worked at it with a small knife, removing flakes of wood with, with precision despite his stubby fingers. Soon a smooth and delicate shape emerged from the soft wood, the image of a single aspen leaf. Only once he had seen an aspen, and that had been far away to the south, near the homeland he had left not so very long ago to seek his fortune in the wide world. The tree had stood pale and slender at the summit of a high pass leading or so his father had told him toward the land of the elves beyond perhaps the quail and fdl's quail and sdl's had planted there as a reminder of their forest home should they have occasion to travel that way he had thought of the tree the tree one of the loveliest sights he had ever seen the leaves as green and shiny as emeralds on one side all frosted with silver on the other maybe one day he might have the fortune to see an aspen tree again but for now the wooden leaf would have to do finally the dwarf grew weary and standing blew out the candle on the table as he passed the window on his way to to his bed a flash to the south caught his eye it burned for a, a long second as it streaked towards the darkened sky and then it was gone across the darkened sky i'm sorry reorks i've never seen such a shooting star he muttered shivering through the spring night was not Though the spring night was not chilly at all, and then, unsure why he stood gaping out the window like some whelp who'd never seen such a sight, he shook his head, closed the shutters, and trudged off, trudged off to dream of aspen trees. Okay, <laughs> our uh, theme has been cut off this time, so we're just going to run with it. Uh, you know that uh, obviously uh, improvisation is is my my best. Uh, yeah, um, internet went out for a second. We'll be fine. Okay, it's back. Um, Finish the the theme, huh? You may finish it. Uh, no, it's we're usually we're in, I fade it down right about right, there. Right, right. Okay, here we go. <laughs> If you're just tuning into the show for the first time, just get kind of used to that. Yeah. Well, usually it's actually flawless. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the, you know, my ability to not put forth the best thing sometimes. Yeah, you're not very good at this. But yeah, yeah good. Not, not good at all. Um, See? We were talking about Flint. <laughs> and the reason I started with that is uh, we're now, at the beginning of this part, uh, Flint has just died. And he has been taken away by Fizban into the the mysterious Fizban into the uh, basically disappeared in, into nothing at God's home. Um, I uh, I have a part marked I'm going to read, and it ends with something that's extremely heartbreaking. Quote: Tannis was the last. Turning, he looked back once more. That's they're leaving now. Once more upon the barren place, darkness was falling swiftly. The azure blue sky deepening to purple and finally to black. The strange boulders were shouting in the gathering gathering gloom. He could no longer see the dark pool of rock where Fizben had vanished. It seemed odd to think of Flint being gone. There was a great emptiness inside of him. He kept expecting to hear the dwarf's, grum, the dwarf's grumbling voice complain about his various aches and pains or argue with the kinder. For a moment, Tannis struggled with himself, holding on to his friend as long as he could. Then, silently, he let Flint go. Turning, he crept through the narrow cleft in the rocks, leaving God's home, never to see it again. Once back on the trail, they followed until they came to a small cave. Here they huddled together, not, nearing to build a, not daring to build a fire this near to Naraka the center of the might of the dragon armies for a while no one spoke then they began to talk about flint letting letting him go 
as Tannis had done. Their memories were good ones recalling Flint's rich, adventurous life. They laughed heartily when Caraman recounted the tale of the disastrous camping trip, how he'd overturned the boat trying to catch a fish by hand, knocking Flint into the water. Tannis recalled how Taz and the dwarf had met when Taz accidentally walked off with a bracelet Flint had made and was trying to sell it a fare. Tika remembered the wonderful toy she had made. He had made for her. That's one of my favorite things is the in kindred spirits that I will discuss is, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, how Flint made these toys uh, for all these elven kids. And he would take him to like this park and sit there and start giving the toys out. And they were to Tannis. He made, he gave me a, a, a pea shooter, made him a pea shooter. Uh, he would do the little birds that would rock back and forth, you know, weighted at the bottom. Um, you know, jointed knights and stuff like that. You know, just just really wonderful things. I like to think about him doing that also in solace. You know, with a young Tika Caraman, he probably made Caraman a knight on a you know Sturm too. You know, because they were all young kids. Um, so. We continue, quote, she recalled his kindness when her father disappeared, how he had taken the young girl into his own home until Odic had given her a place to live and work. All these and more memories they recalled until by the end of the evening, the bitter sting had gone out of their grief, leaving only the ache of loss. That is for most of them. Late, late in the dark watches of the night, Tessahaw sat outside the cave entrance, staring up into the stars. Flint's helm, helm was clutched in the small hands, tears streaming a check down his face. That is one of the, I don't ever do this usually. I don't like poems. I don't like songs. I mean, there are exceptions, but not many. I always skip over them in the books. But I thought because this is a pretty big event, you know, well, one of the biggest events in, in, in the whole series and, and one of the saddest that I would read is called Kinder Morning Song. And apparently Tasselhoff was singing this. Always before the spring returned, the bright world and the cycle spun in air and flowers, grass and fern, assured and cradled by the sun. Always before you could explain the turning darkness of the earth and how that dark remembered the ra- embraced the rain and gave the ferns and flowers birth. Already I forget those things and how a vein of gold survives, the mining of a thousand springs, the se- seasons of a thousand lives. Now winter is my memory, now autumn, now the summer light. So every spring from now will be another season in tonight. That is actually a very beautiful piece. Um, the kinder we've discussed are very... They're flighty and they have these things, but their friendships are strong. Like they form all these really powerful friendships. And Tasselhoff, especially, who's even, you know, I think he's more more gregarious than most Kinder. Like he's he loves other people, and he and his non Kinder friends are his best friends. Um, matter of fact, he's I've never seen him talk to another. I don't think I've read him talking to another Kinder in the books or um, or anything, but. Uh, you know, I've always thought that was nice. Um, the companions are now trying to get into Naraka or Naraka. Um, you know, that's where the center of the dragon arms. We're coming to the to the end to the, uh, I guess, the denouement. I don't even know if that's true. Um, but uh, if that word, I don't even know if that tr- if that word is ap- applicable. Um, but uh, quote. Writhing black lines snake across the barren plain toward the only building within a hundred miles, the Temple of the Queen of Darkness. It looked as though hundreds of vipers were slithering down from the mountains, but these were not vipers. These were the dragon armies, thousands strong. 
The two men watching saw here and there the flash of sun of spear and shield. Flags of black and red and blue fluttered from tall poles that bore the emblems of the dragon high lords. Flying high above them, dragons filled the air with a hideous rainbow of colors, reds, blues, greens, and blacks. Two gigantic flying citadels hovered over the walled temple compound. The shadows they cast made a perpetually night down below. You know, said Caraman slowly, it is a good thing that old man attacked us back there. We would have been massacred if we'd ridden our brass dragons into this mob. It was, it was mine. Uh, (laughs) I forgot to turn off my alerts. Um, uh, Remember, Pyrite, the fool's gold, the gigantic ancient dragon of Fizban attacked him and got him to land because they knew that was going to happen. You know, Uh, or at least Fizban knew it was going to happen. Where I grew up, we were, uh, it was lousy with fucking Pyrite. Yeah. And 20 mile. Oh, and yeah. we would just gather it up and we <laughs> think were, you had something. We, no, we were, we would pretend like we were pirates. And like right. My brothers well, would chase awesome. me and beat yeah. me up. It was awesome. The eighties, man. <laughs> right. The eighties were the best. We were like the stranger things, kids, except for really stupid and not really chasing anything. Just each other. Right. <laughs> really stupid. <laughs> we were them except dumb. Except for dumb and not charismatic. Um, and in a holler. All the dragon, the, the dragon armies are now converging on Naraka because there is this, the queen of darkness will be entering the world soon. You know, that's the whole process of this thing. And they're trying to get in there to, I don't even know what what they're going to do with Barum. They don't know what they're going to do with them either. Um, Tannis wants to get in there to save Lorana, of course. And that's what the, the whole, what their purpose in the thing is. Um, There's a big description about, you know, all the, different dragon armies and they're you know evil being how it is and this is a wonderful description of that thing evil turns upon itself because all these they start fighting amongst themselves and they're they start knifing each other and then in the in the darkness and because the dragon armies the different you know i don't even know what you call the the division uh I guess they would be divisions of the army, you know, with uh, the red dragon army, the blue dragon army, the green dragon, you know, they're all, they are at each other's throats because they're all trying to get power. You have all these dragon, dragon high lords. Ariacus is the most powerful one, you know, but Kittyar is always scheming and he knows it, but she's also a, a tremendously good general. There was a discussion with, uh, I had with a guy on the, uh, on the, uh, in the comments. In the comments. And he was talking about how, you know, I, I, sh- I shortchanged Lorana. Um, I got to agree with him. Well, <laughs> Not really. I have no idea. I don't, I'm no, no, no. I'm, no, he wasn't. He said, it was just a, it, it, I know. It was a, it was a very uh, polite and good discussion. You know, he had points and they were good points. Um, I said that Kitty Ara, her whole getting beaten was a feint. You know, it was like banging her line and drawing back so Lorana would chase Wait, her. It was dope. Yeah, playing opossum, or or uh, what Hannibal would do, which is called the double envelop, where he would bang the center of the Roman line and fall back until the Romans would almost invariably charge in, and then he would circle them and kill them. Um, but having her, read his description, he's probably right. Kitty R was getting beaten. Uh, Lorana was a really good general and had her on the ropes. So uh, until you know, Kitty R figured out how he was going to use devious methods to to win so that's what she did pull out a foreign object out of the trunks right basically oh yeah she's definitely she's definitely an undocumented object she's definitely the heel uh undocumented object that's what i'm saying Um, now they the the companions have come to the trying to get into you know 
I don't even know if it's a city. I guess it's Narak is a city, but you know, it, it's kind of vague. It's just a, basically a chaotic mass of troops. And sounds like the type of place America would bomb for oil. <laughs> Uh, Naraka, Naraka, <laughs> oh, Naraka, or, or Naraka. Um, this this system is, uh, of course, in the in the ranks of evil. It's the strong survive that they use. That that's their big. They're very CEO type. You know, uh, like I said, Kitiara in our world would be definitely be a successful CEO of some company, and she would delight in destroying her competition up the ranks. Um, quote. The High Lords were supposed to enter the city by order of rank. Thus, Lord Ariacus entered first with his personal retinue, his troops, his bodyguards, his dragons. Then Kittyar, the Dark Lady, with her personal retinue, her troops, her bodyguards, her dragons. Then Lucian of Takar, I don't know anything about him, with his personal retinue, his troops, and so forth, until all the High Lords down to Dragon High Lord Toad of the Eastern Front. Remember him? The Hobgoblin? He was one of the, he was one of the first, you know... Um, he was part, he was responsible for the first fight in the book with Tasselhoff Flint and Tannis and just got massacred and he ran away. So big fat hobgoblin, just a dope. Um, he actually meets a very satisfying end coming up soon. It's gonna be one I think a lot of people is one of the favorite parts. Not it's it's only told in hearsay. It's not told from that point of from the. It doesn't happen basically. They're just talking about what yeah, is. Did you hear about the? Yeah, toad? and it's an awesome way he gets killed. So we'll just stick, <laughs> uh, stick there, with there it. There ought to be like fifteen different versions of it. People, <laughs> yeah. like in in like yeah. in like a TV show, you'd walk by a couple people and yeah. they'd be talking about it. You right. know, he had his head cut off. Well, that's like uh, that's a big uh, Game of Thrones thing. People just have so many different tales about that kind of stuff. But again, brevity. Let me say this though before we continue. I always thought that the reason the the books were short is because brevity was an issue as being a young adult thing. And I was told by another guy or uh, person or it might, I don't, I don't even know if it's a, a girl or a guy, but um, they told me that, and it's, an, and it's an interesting thing, that the reason they're brief is because a lot of the parts in the other books were modules, as in adventures. So you would read the book, it would set up a module, you know, stuff like that. And um, they couldn't tell the whole story because the, the rest of the story was being told in that format so that they did they came back and did the lost chronicles later where they i think they retold those those parts in in novel form and i've actually never read them that's a sad thing to say i think i'll read them and then we can discuss them on here um in a later date um how about i read them and then we discuss them on here and it turns into dutch tales for those episodes you would never finish them absolutely i wouldn't even start them i know you wouldn't I one would of the read, coolest i things. would read the back of the book <laughs> it'd be a bart simpson to ask uh book report do you ever try to give a book report the reading book yeah it's the best every book report i, ever I think the teachers like that better than good book reports because they're so entertained by how shitty these kids do. i would skim i'd read the back of the book <laughs> and i would ramble and i would get a's there you go one of the coolest things that happened, though, is that all these quarrels are starting to break out, and then we see a familiar, a familiar face rear his big scaly head. Quote, 
Coral Strata Among the Dragons, too, as each leader, lead dragon sought to establish dominance over the others. A big green, Cyan Bloodbane, had actually killed a fight, a red in a fight over a deer. Unfortunately, unfortunately for Cyan, the red had been a pet of the Dark Queens. The big green was now imprisoned in a cave beneath Naraka, where his howls and violent tail lashings caused many up above to think an earthquake had struck. That motherfucker is a, a badass. He's He killed a brace of dragon that is larger than him. Well, I mean, he's so big. Cyan Bloodbane. You such, expect him to be a little twinkle toes i mean but he's such a you know for all those people listening to this and, and don't know that i cuss i cuss that's that's what we're doing sometimes but, um, we say fuck <laughs> but uh he is just this monster of a dragon he's a green which aren't even the biggest ones and he's just just a freak and if so, you like cussing listen to the other podcast on this feed because <laughs> there's gonna be a lot of it right we kind of um They get to this. Their plan is to get in through this uh, gate, uh, Tannis and the others. And Caraman, uh, yeah, of course, Caraman and Tannis are dressed up in dragon army uh, armor. So they make up a story. This, you know, Tika is, is would be valuable because she's Tika, and uh, the Kander is supposed to have something in his pouches. You know, it's it's not a very satisfactory explanation. But the guy's he's a he's a functionary, so he's just like I don't care. Just get him, to, you know, basically. So, um, but Barum is standing there, and he's got a fake beard on, and they're just trying to get through. It's starting to fall apart, and then uh, something else happens to help them. Uh, at first, it's not a good thing. That quote: "There was a blaring of trumpets and wild cheering from the crowd as a huge blue dragon bearing a dragon high lord entered the temple gates." Seeing the High Lord, Tannis's heart constricted with pain and suddenly a wild elation. The crowd surged forward, roaring Kediar's name, and for the moment, the guards were distracted as they looked to see if the High Lord might be in danger. Tannis le- leaned as near as Tasselhoff as he could. He basically tells him, like, no matter what I do, you keep doing this, you know. Um, and then he, he starts running through the crowd. He starts yelling her name, trying to get her attention. Um... Quote, Kittyara, he yelled just as the cards caught hold of him. Kittyara, he screamed a hoarse, ragged shout that seemed torn from his chest. Fighting the guards, he managed to free one hand. With it, he gripped his helmet and tore it off his head, hurling it to the ground. The High Lord in the night blue dragon scale armor turned upon hearing her name. Tannis could see her brown eyes widen in astonishment beneath the hideous dragon mask she wore. He could see the fiery eyes of the male blue dragon turn to gaze at him as well. Kittyara, Tannis shouted. Shaking off his captors with a strength born of desperation, he drove forward again. But draconians in the crowd flung themselves back on, flung themselves on him, knocking him to the ground where they held him pinned by his arms. Still, Tannis struggled, twisting to look in the eyes of the High Lord. Halt, Sky, Kittyara said, placing a gloved hand commandingly on the dragon's neck. Sky stopped obediently, his clawed feet slipping slightly on the cobblestones of the street. But the dragon's eyes, as he glared at Tannis, were filled with jealousy and hatred. Tannis held his breath. His heart beat painfully. His head ached and blood dribbled down into one eye, but he didn't notice. He waited for the shout that would tell him Tasselhoff hadn't understood that his friends had tried to come to his aid. He waited for Kittyara to look behind him and see Caraman, her half-brother, and recognize him. He didn't dare turn around to... To see what had happened to his friends, he could only hope Caraman had sense enough and faith enough him to keep out of sight. Um, Tannis is going to play this uh, charade again. He's told her that uh, you know she's basically intrigued. Um, he makes up a story on the spot that uh, 
um, that they were arrested. You know, he was arrested. This and, and he's you know he he had papers for desertion and all kind of stuff. It's not it's not true. And of course she's a she's a smart cookie. She knows it's not true too. Um, and she uh, takes Tannis along with her. Um, Tannis is always able to make her you know, at least curious. I mean, she's, we'll get into that in a minute. There's, it's a big part of this episode. Why, you know, what kind of person she is and, um, you know, she's just why she's so hated. Um, but, um, Caraman and Tika and Taz are left and taken down to the dungeons. Um, Uh, they get taken under the the temple, you know, there in Naraka. Quote, at the far end of the compound, the temple itself loomed over the city like a carrion bird of prey. It's twisted, deformed, obscene structure, seemingly dominate even the mountains on the horizon beyond. Once anyone set foot in Naraka, his eyes went first to the temple. After that, no matter where else he looked or what other business occupied him, the temple was always there, even at night, even in his dreams. Taz took one look, then hurriedly glanced away, feeling a cold sickness creep over him. But the sights before him were almost worse. The tent city was filled with troops, draconians and human mercenaries, goblins and hobgoblins spilled on out of the hastily constructed bars and brothels onto the filthy streets. Slaves of every race had been brought in to serve their captors and provide for their unholy pleasures. Golly dwarves swarm, swarmed underfoot like rats living off the refuse. That's a pretty disgusting line right there. The stench was overpowering. The sights were like something from the abyss. Although it was midday, the square was dark and chill as night. Glancing up, Tess saw the huge flying citadels floating above the temple in terrible majesty, their dragons circling them in unceasing watchfulness. Um, Caraman doesn't know what's going on at this point. He thinks that Tannis has sold him out, but, um, finally Taz like yells at him and he says, you know, Tannis said to trust him, you know, to, to keep going with this until, you know, no matter what, um, he tries to whisper, but the uh, draconian, um, hears him talking quote, Without warning, Taz's draconian guard turned and bashed the kinder across the mouth, slamming him into the wall. Dazed with pain, Tezahoff sank down to the ground. A dark shadow bent over him. His vision fuzzy. Taz couldn't see who it was, and when, and he braced for another blow. Then he felt strong, gentle hands lifting by, by his fleecy vest. I told you not to damage them, growled Caraman. Um, he really... It's really hurt him. Um, you know... Draconians are pretty strong and it knocks, you know, almost knocks him out and his head, head hurts. It probably gave him a pretty serious concussion. Um, I don't know why that's relevant, but it's, you know, something they talk about later in the book. Um, well, concussions can have long lasting impacts. Sure. Um, then it, uh, it cuts to Tannis and Kitty Ara, uh, now discussing, um, what he's doing there um quote wine no kiara shrugged taking the pitcher from the bowl of snow in which it rested to keep cool she slowly poured some for herself idly watching the blood red liquid run out of the crystal carafe into her glass then she carefully set the crystal carafe back into the snow and sat down opposite tennis regarding him coolly um she asked him why he's here and he replies you know why he answered briefly Lorana, of course, Kittyara said. Tennis shrugged, careful to keep his face a mask, yet fearing this woman who sometimes knew him better than he knew himself could read every thought. Um, here we have a 
part that I didn't highlight because I just knew I'd remember it. Um, I don't know if he said this because he thought he'd get a reaction out of her. Um, he, I, maybe he was hoping that he would get a reaction out of her. And he says, he tells him, he tells her Flint's dead. And she barely bats an eye. Um, quote, Flint's dead, he added, his voice breaking. Even in his fear, he still could not think of his friend without pain. And Tasselhoff wandered off somewhere. I couldn't find that's a lie, of course. Um, and then she basically said, well, Flint's dead, big deal. And then uh, Tannis continues, quote, like Sturm, Tannis could not help but add through clenched teeth. Kit glanced at him sharply. The fortunes of war, my dear, she said. We are both soldiers, he and I. He understands. His spirit bears me no malice. Tannis choked angrily, swallowing his words. What she said was true. Sturm would understand. And that's absolutely true. He wouldn't He wouldn't hold that against her. There are plenty of other things to hold against her, but but he wouldn't. He's like, ah, we were fighting. It's, it's what happens. Um, They're both Salamnic, too. That's a... Uh, you know, and there's some history there uh, that we'll find out later between those two characters. Um, actually, it's a big part of the next of the last Chronicles book, and actually a couple of short novellas and stories before that. So, um, and very good stuff. It's some of the best writing they ever put out. Um, Tannis tells her that the that the ship broke up in the Sea of Istar and they're all died, even the green, gem, green Gemstone Man, he told her, you know, the best lie to tell is something that's half true, basically. So he tells her that uh, a, a sea elf saved him and she asked why did, you know, of course, why didn't she she save the others? And he said, because I'm an elf. It checked, that story would check out, you know, usually to somebody like Kitty Ara who's, you know, she has a lot of, she's a, a pretty big racist. Uh, she has a lot of, which is odd. She has a lot of contempt for elves. I heard she was at the January 6th Capitol riots. <laughs> she would have fit right in. Um, actually, no, she wouldn't have. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, Tannis then offers himself for in Lorana's stead. And uh, Kitty R has a, a very Kitty Ara esque uh you know reply quote kitty Ara's eyes opened wide then suddenly she threw back her head and laughed with a quick easy move she broke free of tannis's grip and turning walked over the table to refill her wine glass she grinned him over her shoulder why tannis she said laughing again what are you to, to me that i should make this trade and she continues, quote, I have captured their golden general, Tannis. I've taken their good luck charm, their beautiful elven warrior. She wasn't a bad general either, for that matter. She brought them the dragon lances and taught them to fight. Her brother brought back the good dragons, but everyone credits her. She kept the knights together when they should have split apart long before this. And you want me to exchange her for Kitty R. Jesper contemptuously, a half-elf who's been wandering the countryside in the company of kinder, barbarians, and dwarves. And then she says something that's extremely cutting. Quote, Kitty Ora began to laugh again, laughing so hard she was forced to sit down and wipe tears from her eyes. Really, Tannis, you have a high opinion of yourself. What do you think I'd take you back for? Love? Um, but here's where she has overplayed her hand. Um, we've discussed before, narcissists have that one person, usually, that... Uh, that loves them and they know it. And even though they're almost not really capable of love themselves, um, they crave that love. 
um, she craves Hannah's love, but it's it's something not twisted into it's it it, it almost makes them feel human because they know deep down what they are, you know. So even you know, despite all their you know power, they're striving for power and grasping and all that stuff. They still want to feel loved and they want to feel like they're a good person. That one person makes them feel like a good person. That Tannis is that to her. It makes it gives her oddly enough. She's human, but she has the least amount of humanity between the two. Tannis is half human, and he's way more human than she is because she's just so cold of a person. Um. So yeah, uh, quote. There was a subtle change in Kit's voice. Her laugh seemed forced. Frowning suddenly, she twisted the wine glass in her hand. Tannis did not respond. He could only stand before his skin skin burning at her ridicule. Kadiar stared at him, then lowered her gaze. Um. She asks, you know, she asks what she he would give her return, uh, in return, and he says, quote, the commander of your forces is dead, he said, keeping his voice even. I know. Taz told me he killed him. I'll take his place. He'll He's going to serve in the dragon armies. Um, there's an interplay here. Um, Kitty R tells him, um, one second. She tells him that, you know, she's going to repair for this big ceremony and meeting tonight. And then they discuss it afterwards. Um, she said she would consider it. Um, but she's always, she's playing both sides here as we'll soon discover. But at this moment, Tannis really, I think, finally sees her for what she is. He finally. Tannis is really this. This journey is, you know, the hero's journey is his. It's others too, but the hero's journey is a lot his, and it's also the warring parts of his of his personality of of his basically of his blood. Um, I don't know if I buy that because you know elves feel and stuff too, but um, they they do are more kind, I would think, and you know, it, it's just a. That's a that's a strange duality of nature. Sometimes they're really cold, but they revere life. You know things like that. So, um, and we hear a, uh, there's a great passage here where uh, finally, Ta- I mean, Tannis sees her for what she is. Quote, quote Suddenly, Tannis felt the great distance between them. Between them, she was supremely, superbly human. For only the humans were endowed with lust for power so strong that the raw passion of their nature could be easily corrupted. The humans' brief lies were as flames that could burn with a pure light like gold moon's candle, like storm shattered sun, or the flame could destroy a searing fire that consumed all in its path. He had warmed his cold, sluggish elven blood by that fire. He had nurtured the flame in his heart. Now he saw himself as he would become, as he had seen the bodies of uh, those who died in the flames of Tarsus, a mass of charred flesh, the heart blackened still. It was his due, the price he must pay. He would lay his soul upon this woman's altar as another might lay a handful of silver upon a pillow. He owed Lorana that much. She had suffered enough because of him. His death would not free her, but his life might. Slowly, Tannis placed his heart over his, uh, his hand over his heart and bowed. My lord, he said. Um, we then have a... Kitty Ars walked, uh, has gone to her private chamber. Um... And then she, uh, one second. Yeah. Kitty R has come to her room and, uh, she, 
She feels a cold and fleshless hand close over her wrist. Quote, the touch of that head sent a burning sensation of cold through her bones and blood until it nearly flows her heart. Kitiara gasped with the pain and started to pull free, but the hand held her fast. You have, no far- you have for not, not forgotten our bargain? No, of course not, Of course not. Kitiara said. Trying to keep the quiver of fear from her voice, she commanded sternly, let me go. The hand slowly released its grip. Kitiara hurriedly snatched her arm away, rubbing the flesh that even the short span of time had turned bluish white. The elf woman will be yours when the queen is finished with her, of course. Of course, I would not want, to want her otherwise. A living woman is no, of no use to me, not like a living man is of use to you. The dark figure's voice lingered unpleasantly over the words. Kitiara cast a scornful glance at the pallid face, the flickering eyes that floated, disembodied above the black armor of the night. Don't be a fool, Soth, she said, pulling the bell rope hastily. She felt a need for light. I am able to separate the pleasures of of the flesh from the pleasures of business, something you were never, you were unable to do from what I know of your life. Um, she, Soth is, um, is an odd character here. He wants Lorana, uh, to accompany him into his cursed life. Um, that's, that's the bargain that Kitty R is making and she's lying telling Tannis that he that she will give her over to him. So Sorry about that guys. We had a little bit of a they won't even notice. technical uh technical detail there as more something wrong with the uh host as opposed to the to the uh equipment. We want to talk about things wrong with the host to be quicker to name name things not wrong with the There host. you go. That's why he's the best producer in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, we were discussing Kitty R and Lord Soth are now discussing what they're going to do with Lorana. And basically, Kitty R is going to give the sacrifice Lorana to Lord Soth to share his eternal life of torment, his eternal, yeah, eternal life of torment. Um, he's a human. He seems par- partial to the elven gals. Because the wife that he, the, the woman that he killed, um, who was pregnant with his child, was uh, was an elf woman. Um, a Islamic knight marrying an elf woman. I wonder how what kind of scandal that was. I mean, I don't know. If, if you're elves, I, I would figure that I, you would think that the Islamic knights were probably, well, it's the best one of those people we can find. You know, so maybe her family was, you know, they weren't okay with it. Let's, let's just be... <laughs> be fair it's not that um, he's one of the good ones type of no i mean that to them you know especially well no, this is before the cataclysm so he actually could have averted the cataclysm had he it came down to him uh had he made a different choice the cataclysm never would have happened um and um she tells him quote you will attend me tonight she said to lord soth looking at, at the apparition of the death knight which she assumed was still in the same place behind her be careful Lord Oriacus will not be pleased with what I intend to do. The Spectre Knight stood beside the dragon helm that lay on the table amidst pieces of the broken vase. Uh, Kitty R had thrown a had thrown her helmet in uh, anger. With a wave of his fleshless hand, Lord Soth caused the shattered remains of the vase to rise into the air and hover before him. Holding them by the force of his magic, the Death Knight turned and regarded Kitty R with his flaming orange eyes as he stood naked as she stood naked before him. The firelight turned her tan skin golden, made her dark hide dark hair shine with warmth you're a woman still kitty our lord sauce said slowly you love 
The knight did not move or speak, but the pieces of the vase fell to the floor. His pallid boot trod upon them as he as he passed, leaving no trace of his passing. That's actually a pretty clumsy, I'm sorry to say, it's a pretty clumsy uh, sentence right there. His pallid boot trod upon him as he passed, leaving no trace of his passing. Hmm. And you hurt, he said softly, Kadariara, as he drew as he drew nearer. Do not deceive yourself, dark lady. Crush him as you will. The half elf will always be your master, even in death. Lord Soth melted with the shadows of the room. Kadiara stood for long moments, staring in the blazing fire, seeking perhaps to read her fortune in the flames. He's basically calling her out for her. She wants Tannis as most narcissists do. Um, there's a passage there I didn't read because I had a little, uh, issue right there. Um, sorry about that, but she wants him so she can grind him beneath her heel. So she doesn't, so she doesn't see anything in him anymore that she likes, you know, she loves him. She sees him. He, she knows he's a good person and that's really part of the whole thing too. They delight in hurting good people. You know, um, you're really going to, again, we've run across some of these people in life, in life, but uh, she's a definitely a textbook case. She's a, I'd say she's on the border of sociopath. I mean, especially with some of the things. Um, you know, a lot of the things she does, she is definitely on that line. Um, she does feel love, I suppose. She, but she feels all the base emotions, hatred, lust, all those things. But, um, then we uh, we cut to um, the her draconian personal assassin, basically Gawkin, rocking with Gawkin. Um, <laughs> uh, he's trying to discover what's going on with uh, where the Everman is. Um, oh, he, but he got, to to do that, he goes to a bar. He finds the officer that that was you know privy to that whole exchange between uh tannis and kitty R, and then the people behind him who apparently came in with tannis you know and he's a he's a pretty smart guy um and then um he knows where he's going to go down to the dungeon to look for him then we come to uh tasselhoff and, and tika are in the dungeons um you know in a cage and uh she's trying to wake him up but his head really hurts um, actually really hurts. Um, quote, a hand patted his cheek. The whispered voice was tense, tight with terror, kept under control. The kinder knew suddenly that he had no choice. He had to wake up. Besides the jumping up and down part of his brain shouted, you might be missing something. <laughs> um, Taz, uh, Taz has where, where they are. And uh, she tells him, quote, in the dungeons below the temple, Tika said softly, Taz, sitting next to her, could feel her shiver with fear and cold. Looking around, he could see why. The sight made him shudder, too. Wistfully, he remembered the good old days when he hadn't known the meaning of the word fear. He should have felt a thrill of excitement. He, had, he was, after all, someplace he'd never been before, and there were probably lots of fascinating things to investigate. But there was death here, Taz knew. Death and suffering. He'd seen too many die, too many suffer. His thoughts went to Flint, to Sturm, to Lorana. Something had changed inside Taz. He would never again be like other kinder. Through grief, he had come to know fear, fear not for himself, but for others. He decided right now that he would rather die himself than lose any, anyone else he loved. Um, you know, powerful. it is. And he's, they get into that later. Taz is, you know, there's actually a scene in another book where a bunch of kinder are like, 
chattering at somebody like standing around and he comes up and he starts moving them away like he's older in this in this story and they look at him with a lot of respect and stuff but even other people who don't know him look and say that kinder's different he's not so manic he's not so you know he's like he's got a lot of weight you know a lot of gravitas a lot of weight on him you know as in emotional weight and they can tell i've always liked taz for that reason and um he still taz um when we when we do the legend series which we will do we're not going to do them back to back because i'd like to do a little, a little bit different stuff next time but once we do those he has some truly amazing parts in those books i mean just some of the best fantasy writing characterization ever next we're going to do the twilight series aren't we <laughs> yeah 50 shades of puke um they're in the like I said, they're in the cell. Caraman is pretending to be away from, you know, the others. He's pretending to be a put upon Dragon Army officer who's just been caught in the shuffle of paperwork. Like what what the hell am I doing in here with all these idiots? You I'm know, getting too old for this. <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> Basically. Murky. Um he's he's really pay, playing the part. Apparently he really listened to what Tana said. He's really trying to pull it off. You know, it's a, it's a tough thing. Barum is freaking out, you know, cuz he's in Naraka now. That one place, remember where he didn't want to go. It's the one place he had to go and the one place he didn't want to go. So you have Tika, Taz. Tika is now taking on a lot more responsibility with the thing. She's trying to – you got to remember, she's not a warrior yet. I mean, she's accounted herself well in fighting and stuff like that. She's she's brave and all these things, but she's really – you know, she's starting to step up here, and that we'll see that a little bit in, in a little bit too, the way that goes. Um, then the – Gawkin approaches their cell and basically he reaches through the bars and pulls open Barum's shirt and they found the Everman. Um, so, you know, that's a big deal. Uh, you know, the, the Queen of Darkness is now in position. This is what they've been searching for the, the entire time. Um, and if they, if the, Dark priests and you know the and the and the dragon armies get Barum, then it's over. Then Queen Takesis can come into the world. She can conquer everything. It's like this big, you know. It's a it's a plot point, and it's you know kind of again. It wasn't my favorite plot point. Um, It never was. But this part actually turns really good, and not just for Barum. Barum actually, you know, more comes into his own, and the story kind of you know, comes to fruition here. And it's actually a lot better than it had been. Like it's more fleshed out. And I actually started to like it at this point, but it's the way the other characters react. Um, Tiku was a minor character, as I said, stepping up. Tasselhoff dealing with all the death, especially Flint's death, hurting him so much. Tana's finally dealing with um, the, the dual parts of his nature and knowing now that knowing what this woman who he loved is, and then the the biggest one is Caraman. Caraman really here in a minute really steps up, and you know it's a there's a touching part that comes soon. We'll get into that. So um, I just wanted to say that's this is where the book really starts to, especially this book. Who you know Spring Dawning was never I got to be honest was never my favorite of the three. Um, I did like parts of it, of course, but I was always a Dragons of Autumn Twilight guy. Or no, actually, take that back. Dragons of Winter Night was pretty much my favorite. Had the lost, the the great death of Sturm, and had all those, you know, heavy moments. And Sturm's 
uh, funeral, which is one of the best pieces of writing I've ever read. So, um, uh, and then uh, Gawkin basically says, "This night victory is ours." It's you know that we come to the end of that part. But then we cut back to Tannis, quote, sweating in the dragon scale armor. Tannis stood beside Kitiara in one of the vast antechambers leading to the great wall of great hall of audience. Surrounding the half elf were Kitiara's troops, including the hideous skeletal warriors under the command of the death, death knight, Lord Soth. These stood in the shadows just behind Kitiara. Th- through the, though the antechamber was crowded, Kitiara's drag, draconian, draconian troops, dragon draconia, I stumble over that sometimes. Uh, were packed in spear to spear. There was, nevertheless, a vast empty space around the undead warriors. None came near them. None spoke to them. They spoke to no one. And though the room was stifling hot with the crushing press of many bodies, a chill flowed from these that nearly stopped the heart of one if one ventured too near. Um, Kitty R. tells, there's a a point where I thought was odd because it's definitely bullshit. Tannis looks at Lord Soth and is, you know, just... He he's just fear. Just fear flows from him. Actually, if you're playing the game, I think you have to make a roll against fear when your character will just turn and run. You know, and you have to do that every so often, especially when they're approaching you. If I'm not mistaken, it's like the dragon. It's like the dragon fear. It's just. It's like you had the worst panic attack in the whole world, and and you're shitting your pants. You know that's what those what the death knights make you feel, especially Lord Lord Soth, who is monstrously powerful. Um, he does a thing in the in the Legend series that I still find to be, even though it's awful, one of the most awesome things in the entire book. And another one of the awesome things is when Tasselhoff tries to shake his hand and meet him. It's like that's a death knight. That's so cool. He holds his hand up like Lord Soth just stares at him. And even Tasselhoff said, "I wasn't scared, mind you, but he made me feel a little weird." You know, he's um, this is the same creature that almost that could walk up to the Shoiken Grove in the. Uh, in the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus, which is designed to terrify anybody even seeing it from afar. He got up to the very, to the grove itself, and then he had to turn around and run. You know, that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, I like when they were discussing that, Aston is then like, he's like, I got to give him credit. That's, that's a lot more than a lot of, I've seen a lot of brave men do, you know, so. Um, but uh, back to the, the pertinence. Um, quote, the Hall of Audience of Tachesis, Queen of Darkness, first impressed the viewer with a sense of his own inferiority. This was the black heart which kept the dark blood flowing, and as such, its appearance, its appearance was fitting. The inner chamber in which they stood opened on, onto a huge circular room with a floor of polished black granite. The floor continued up like dark waves, continued up to form the walls, rising in torture curves like dark waves frozen in time. Any moment, it seemed, they could crash in and engulf all those within the hall in blackness. It was only her dark majesty's power that held them in check. And so the black waves swept up, upward to a high dome ceiling, now hidden from view by a wispy wall, shifting, eddying smoke, the breath of dragons. That's actually a really cool image right there. You know, all these people stand there and those dragons, like every, every dragon high lord, his dragon is like above him sitting behind him you know so i, I don't even know uh, they didn't discuss if Ariacus had one i don't think it would have been it, i assume it'd be a red dragon some kind um then kitty Ara had sky you know what what really terrifies me or makes me amused is imagine the dragon that got assigned to being high lord toad's dragon you would get so ribbed by your other dragons. Be like, really? That's the job you've got. 
know, that like I know, guys. I know I didn't. I didn't do it. It's just, not my choice. They're standing around the water cooler in the dragon <laughs> office with with their ties on. Um, Ariaka sits in the middle of this room, this hall of audience. Um, but then behind him, quote, Tennis felt his gaze drawn irresistibly to an alcove carved into the rock above Ariaka's throne. It was larger than the rest of the alcoves, and within it lurked a darkness that was almost alive. It breathed and pulsed and was so intense that Tennis looked quickly away. Although he could see nothing, he guessed who would soon sit within those shadows. Shuddering, Tennis looked back. Tennis turned back to the dark. Shoot. Tennis turned back to the darkness within the hall. There was not much left to see. All around the dome ceiling and alcoves, similar though smaller than the High Lord's alcoves, perched by the perched the dragons. All, almost invisible, obscured by their own smoking breath, these creatures sat opposite their respective High Lord's alcoves, keeping vigilant watch so the High Lord supposed upon their masters. Actually, one, only one dragon in the assemblage was truly concerned over his master's welfare. This was Sky, Kittyar's dragon, who even now sat in his place, his fiery red eyes staring at the throne in, in, of Ariacus with much the same intensity and far more visible hatred than Tennis had seen in the eyes of Sky's Sky's master. Sky is not um, Sky is I think legitimately has feelings for Kittyar, like he he. He's it's a, it's a dark opposite of Gilthinus and Sil- Silvara. You know, Sky sees so much he loves in Kitty R and so much he admires. Probably lusts after her too. That he is legitimately jealous of people getting her tannis that he hates because you know that's you know her master's man. Basically, she can't stand it. I mean, he can't stand it. So you know, I always thought that was uh, something I didn't realize until fairly rec- recently. That that's what that is. It, it is a dark parallel of a silver dragon with an elf, you know, or a human. I didn't realize that evil dragons could fall in love or would fall in love with a, with a human. You know that that would probably seem beneath them, but to Sky, it isn't. Um, and then the moment comes. Quote: A gong rang. Masses of troops poured into the hall, all of them wearing the red dragon colors of Ariacus troops. Hundreds of clawed and booted feet scraped the floor as the Draconians and human guard of honor entered and took their places beneath Ariacus' throne. No officers officers ascended the stairs. No bodyguards took their places in front of their lord. Then the man himself entered through the gate behind his throne. He walked alone, his purple robes of state sweeping, sweeping majestically from his shoulders, dark armor gleaming in the torchlight. Upon his head glistened a crown studded with jewels, a hue of blood. The crown of power, Kitty Ara murmured, and now Tana saw emotion in her eyes, longing, such longings as he'd rarely seen in human eyes before. Whoever wears the crown rules came a voice behind her, so it is written. Sir Lord Soth said that. Um This is the moment. Like this is basically Takesis is coming through, but you have to understand the tension in this room. You know, it's literally true. Whoever wears that crown rules and Kitty and Tikesis will not get involved in what's going to go among her subordinates, basically her worshipers. The strong will survive. That's what she says. She doesn't care if they murder each other. As long as the strongest one emerges with the crown, that's a mistake considering you're fighting a giant war at the moment. And, you know, but it's that principle that the dragon Lance and Anselon is built upon Good redeems its own. Evil will always consume itself. And neutrality swings the balance, you know. Um, we're going to see that in 
you know, stark terms, you know, coming up very, very soon. And then uh, Kitiara looks at Lord Soth, quote, glancing at, glancing at her, Tannis saw such hatred and contempt on her face that he barely recognized her. Yes, Lord, whispered Kitiara, her, her eyes now dark and gleaming. Whoever wears the crown rules, so does written, written in blood. Half tangling her head, she beckoned to Lord Soth, fetch the elf woman. She's, and Tannis, uh, he sees, I mean, I don't know why I trust her in the first place. I mean, I guess he thought he had her over a barrel or something, or maybe he overestimated his own value, whatever. But, you know, he's surprised when she betrays him. But she's still playing playing the this game. Uh, she's, you know, all right, quote, Listen to me, Half-Elf, and Kitty R said, her voice cold and thin and sharp. I'm after one thing and one thing only, the crown of power Ariacus wears. That is the reason I captured Lorana. That is all she means to me. I will present the elf woman to her majesty, as I have promised. The queen will reward me with the crown, of course. Then she will order the elf taken to the death chambers far below the temple. I care nothing for what happens to the elf after that, and so I give her to you. And my gesture, step forward. I will present you to the queen. Beg of her a favor. Ask that you be allowed to escort the elf woman to her death. If she approves of you, she will grant it. You may then take the elf woman to the city gates or wherever you choose, and there you may set her free. But I want your word of honor, Tannis Half-Elven, that you will return to me. And he, of course, gives it. Quote, Kittyara smiled, her face relaxed. It was so beautiful once more that Tannis, startled by the sudden transformation, almost wondered if he had seen that other cruel face at all. Putting her hand in Tannis' cheek, she stroked his beard. I have your word of honor. That might not mean much to other men, but I know you will keep it. One final warning, Tannis, she whispered swiftly. You must convince the queen that you are a loyal servant. She is powerful, Tannis. She is a goddess. Remember that. She can see into your heart, your soul. You must convince her beyond doubt that you are hers. One gesture, one word that rings false, and she will destroy you. There is nothing I can do. If you die, so does your Lorana. She actually said her full elven name there, but I, again, I never attempted to say that name. It is. It seems like it's 50 does, syllables long. Does it sound like you're talking in reverse in Latin? Is that what it was? Kind saying? of. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's a, it's like it's like they were trying to make something sound, sound sylvan, but actually um, Lorana is actually named, I think, after uh, Trace Hickman's wife. Her name's Laura. So he, you know, I there's so many. His fingerprints are so all over this. A lot of these characters. I really think the Tannis is him deep down. I, you know, Margaret Weiss. You know, of course, had her her hand in it too. You know, she's just as much, uh, and she has things. Raceland was her character. She loved Raceland. She played him. You know, I think she even played him when they played the, the remember these are Dragonlance modules that they were playing too. So I think I'm really sure that Raceland was hers. Um, quote, the crowd began to cheer at the sight of the blue banner. Uh, wait, sorry. Pl- quote, there was a blaring trumpet call there. That is our signal. Kitty Ara said, pulling her gloves on. She drew the dragon helm over her head. Go forward. Tennis lead my troops. I will enter last resplendent in her glittering night blue dragon scale armor. Kitty Ara stepped haughtily out to one side as Tannis walked through the ornate hall doorway into the hall of audience. 
The crowd began to cheer at the sight of the blue banner. Perched above the audience with the other dragons, Sky bellowed in triumph. Aware of thousands of glittering eyes upon him, Tannis firmly put everything out of his mind except what he must do. He kept his eyes fixed on his destination, the platform in the hall next to Lord Oriacus, the platform decorated with the blue banner. Behind him, he could hear the rhythmic stamp of clawed feet as Kit's guard of honor marched in proudly. Tennis reached the platform and stood at the bottom of the stairs he had been ordered. The crowd quieted then, and at the la- as the last draconian filed through the door, a murmur began to sweep through the hall. The crowd strained forward, anxious to see Kitty-R's entrance. Waiting within the antechamber, allowing the crowd to wait just a few more moments to enhance the suspense, Kit glanced glimpsed movement out of the corner of her eye. Turning, she saw Lord Soth enter the antechamber, his guard, guards bearing a white-wrapped body in their fleshless arms. The eyes of the vibrant living woman and the vacant eyes of the dead knight met in perfect agreement and understanding. Lord Soth bowed. Kadir smiled, then turning, she entered into the hall of of audience to thunderous applause. I mean, this is this part of the book. I could tell if they make a movie of it, this would be the last, you know, of course, it'd be the last bit of the show or movie, whatever. It's. Even in this form, like written so long, it's masterfully done. Like I, I, I'm just imagine it's so cinematic. Like they're cutting all these things together. You know, you've got Tannis trying to get to Lorana. You've got Kittyara trying to ascend to power. You've got um, Tika, Taz, and Karaman and Barum. You know, in the in the the chambers below, it would cut back and forth between them. You know, and then there it even gets any even better later and um, coming up. And it's just I've always thought it was so masterful reading it again over the past you know couple weeks i've read this a few times i mean it might be hard to believe because you know i do have long pauses but i am getting my thoughts together before i'm going to say um it's they won't notice the pauses (laughs) but it's it's so again cinematic it's so you know just i imagine like conan the barbarian at the end where you know, they're in with Thulsa Dune and all those things are going on at the same time. You know, they're fighting their way through. I imagine that kind of uh, vibe, you know. Then we cut back to um, Karaman. Um, he's feigning unconsciousness. And he's also feeling kind of sorry for himself. Um, quote, I shouldn't have been left with this responsibility, Karaman swore bitterly. Then... Quit bellyaching, you big ox. They're depending on you, came a voice in the back of his mind. Caraman blinked, then caught himself just as he was about to grin. The voice was so like Flint's, he could have sworn the dwarf was standing beside him. He was right. They were depending on him. He'd just have to do his best. That was all he could do. This is a real indication of where the Caraman character is going. Since he's lost his brother, he's kind of lost purpose. I hope, uh, people reading that, I hope they would get that idea that he's kind of what do I do now? And, you know, I don't have this person to protect and I've lost my brother and all this stuff. Um, so he's trying to get his plan together. Quote, Caraman opens his eyes, a slit peering out between half closed lids. A draconian guard stood almost directly in front of him, back turned to the supposedly comatose warrior. Caraman could not see Barum or the tro- draconian called Gawkin without twisting his head. And he dared not call attention to himself. He could take out that first guard. He knew possibly the second before the other two finished him. He had no hope of escaping alive, but at least he might give Taz and Tika a chance to escape with Barum. And he's getting ready to, you know, spring into action probably would have meant all their deaths but then quote 
Then he froze, watching in his amazement as Barum lurched forward, grabbed Gawkin, and lifted him off the stone floor. Carrying the wildly flailing draconian in his hands, the Everman hurtled out of the jail cell and smashed Gawkin into a stone wall. The dr- draconian's head split apart, cracking like the eggs of the good dragons upon that black altars. Howling in rage, Barum slammed the draconian into the wall again and again until Gawkin was nothing more, nothing more than a limp, green-bloodied mass of shapeless flesh. <laughs> That's a pretty awesome thing, you know. Just a mound of didn't know he had it in him. That's what everybody thinks. Like this guy's been a whiny little so and so the entire time, and now he's just single handedly picked up a some a, a feat of strength that would have done Caraman proud. Gawkins big. He's and he's strong. I should have, you know. Part of my flaw is I sometimes I'll get swept up in the story and I'll let something slip that happened. The reason Caraman was out was Gawkin had, I think, backhanded him and knocked him and like knocked him down. It didn't knock him out. That's why he's feigning unconsciousness. Um, then, um, of course, you know, there's chaos going on and, you know, everybody's freaking out. Um, Tasselhoff, um, hold on. You know, the, the Dragonians call out for a prison escape, of course. Um, quote, in answer came shouts and the sound of clawed feet scraping at the top of the staircase. The hobgoblin took one look at the dread, dread draconian and fled toward the staircase in his guard room, adding his panic-stricken shouts to those of the draconian. The other guard, quickly regaining its feet, jumped into the cell, but Caraman was on his feet now, too. This was action. This he could understand. Reaching out, the big man grabbed the draconian around the neck. With one jerk of his huge hands, the creature fell lifeless to the floor. Caraman swiftly snatched the floor from the clawed hand as the draconian's body hardened into stone. I always wondered that it didn't happen to Gawkins' body. It didn't turn to stone. He, I think he might have been a different... The, as we discussed before, the different breeds of draconians die in different ways. Um, I can't remember if he was a Sivak or a few of them die violently. Like the ones that are, uh, I think, copper dragons turn into a pool of acid. Is like that will choke everybody around them and melt steel. Another the another group, their bones explode. Basically, they become a living bomb. You know, um, the coolest one are the Arax, who are the gold dragons, who they go into this frenzy where they start casting spells and just killing everything around them. Um, that didn't happen with him. Um, I understand why they didn't put it in because it doesn't serve the plot. But it, you know, we're all thinking, well. Why didn't this guy die that way? He just kind of got picked up and pulped, you know? So, um, Teak is the one who cuts through this and, and knows that, uh, the only person that can help bear him and, you know, and complete this task they were, uh, they have to do is, is Caraman. Um, Quote, that's right. Follow Barum, Caraman, Tika said urgently. Go with him. Don't you see? She's calling me, he said. It's his sister voice. It's his, his sister's voice. You, he can hear her calling to him. That's why he went crazy. And then Caraman is basically at a loss of what to do. Um, he's trying to take Tika and Taz with him, but she knows that's a mistake. Quote, no, she said firmly. They'll catch him for certain, and it will be the end. I've got a plan. We must split up. Taz and I will draw them off. We'll give you time. It'll be all right, Caraman, she persisted, seeing him shake his head. There's another quarter that leads east. I saw it as we came in. They'll chase us down that way. Now hurry before they see you. Caraman hesitated, his face twisted in agony. This is the end, Caraman, Tika said, for good or for evil. You must go with him. You must help him reach her. Hurry, Caraman. You're the only one strong enough to protect him. He needs you. 
She knows that's what would cut through. Somebody needs him, you know, and like Raceland always needed him. So that's what it would take. Tegan's shown a lot of maturity here, you know. Um, and Taz, too. Taz is, knows Tegan's right, and then um, they take off down the down the hallway. Um, <laughs> I always thought something was funny here. Quote, ignoring the body that slumped to the floor, Tika heard down the corridor heading east. Tasselhoff, right behind her, took a moment to stop at the bottom of the stair. The, dr- the draconians were visible now, and a cameraman could hear the kinder shrill voice shouting taunts at the guards. At the guards. Dog eaters, slime blooded goblin lovers. I mean, he's that, that kinder taunt, you know. So, of course, that's effective, and they take off after him. Um, and then uh, Caraman is kind of at a loss for a second. He feels alone. He's scared. You know, you, you wouldn't think this warrior guy would be scared, but he's finally alone. This is really the first time he's been alone and things are on his shoulders. He's always had people to do his thinking for him. Raceland did his thinking for him. Tannis did his thinking for him. You know, even Tekin them to a certain degree did his thinking for him. And now he's responsible. This is, you know, he's not ready for this. He's always been kind of childlike. You know, this big, powerful warrior guy, but. Fighting for him is the easy part. It's making decision that's that's the hard part. And we're really, you see that in later books. Like, you know, I'm not giving everybody, uh, this is, you know, you know what's going to happen or whatever. But Karaman is this man child, basically. And he's emotionally stunted in a way. I mean, I don't, it, it's hard to explain Raceland, him and Raceland are indeed two parts of one person. Raceland got all the, basically all the, not all the smarts, but yeah, most of the, all the smarts, basically, let's just go ahead and say it. Caraman got the, the feelings. So he just always listened to what Raceland had to tell him. Cause he knew Raceland was smarter than he was, but race, but Caraman's not dumb. That's, that's another thing that they try to betray. He is naive and things like that, but he's not, he's never been dumb. Um, they that part of the character grows later on, and it's one of the most awesome things. But he really goes through a, a dark period, and um, you know, this is kind of the beginning of it. Quote: He started toward the stairs and stopped. No, there's Barum. He's alone too. Tika's right. He needs me now. He needs me. His mind clear at last. Caraman turned and ran clumsily down the northern corridor after the after the Everman. Um, we cut back to the. Hall of Gathering again. They're calling all the Draconians, I mean, the uh, Dragon Armies, the Dragon High Lords names now. Um, it's the it's usual, you know, pomp and circumstance, all that nonsense. Um, then one of the funniest things is they call um, they call drag they call uh, Dragon High Lord Toad's name. Um, and this is a part that is one of the most poignant parts of the book because it's really, it's one of those things that comes full circle quote Tannis from where he stood upon the steps of Kitty R's platform, followed Arias's gate, Arias's gaze, stern and cold beneath the crown. The half elf's ears had pricked at the sound of toad's name. An image of the hobgoblin came swiftly to his mind. He had seen standing in the dust of the road to solace. The vision brought back thoughts of that warm autumn day that had seen the beginning of this long, dark journey. It brought back memories of Flint and Sturm. Tannis gritted his teeth and forced himself to concentrate on what was happening. The past was over, finished, and he hoped fervently soon forgotten. Um, 
turns out the dragon high lord toad is dead and the reason he's dead because he was such an idiot and a lick spittle the one place they would let him take care of is kinder home but the kinder rose up and killed him led by this this awesome kinder warrior name and this is a great name especially for a warrior kinder cronin thistle knot that is tremendous he's and they i've I've read descriptions of him he's unusually muscular for a kinder and really got this powerful he's still a kinder you know he's still happy go lucky and all that stuff but he led the kinder and they like uh, kinder can really fight they they always say they fight like cornered rats you know they they'll get vicious with you and yeah, uh, Cronin Thistlenaut and the Kinder of Kinderholm rose up and killed the Dragon High Lord Toad. Makes one wonder his dragon. I'm, a, I'm imagining a a, a a scenario where there's dragons kind of standing behind him, and the Kinder are like coming up these stairs, and the dragon just kind of kicks Toad down to him, and like, all right, darn, we lost. He takes takes off, so he doesn't have to do that job anymore. <laughs> He's like, I don't have to be that idiot's uh, mount or whatever anymore. So. Um, but one of the worst things is, is that, uh, after that, Ryak is, is, is he's basically determined now he's just going to wipe Kinder from once, once he wins, once Tikisas comes back, he's going to wipe all Kinder from the face of Kryn. That's what going to be one of his, uh, big tasks. But then, um, Kitty Ara makes her play basically quote. With his gloved hand, Ariacus made an irritated, sweeping gesture. Silence fell instantly over the assemblage, and then the silence was broken. Kittyar laughed. It was mirthless laughter, arrogant and mocking, and it echoed loudly from the depths of his metal, of the metal mask. His face twisted in outrage. Ariacus rose to his feet. He took a, stored, took a step forward, and as he did so, steel flashed among his draconians on the floor as swords flit, slid out of scabbards and spear butts thudded against the floor. At the sight, Kittyar's own troops closed ranks, backing up so that they were they pressed closely around the platform of their lord, which is at Ariacus' right hand. Instinctively, Tannis hand, hand closer to the hilt of his sword, and he found himself moving a step nearer Kittyara, though it meant setting his foot upon the platform where he was not supposed to tread. Kittyara did not move. She remained seated, calmly regarding Ariacus with scorn that could be felt, if not seen. Suddenly, a breathless hush descended over the assemblage, as if the breath in each body was being choked off by an unseen force. Faces paled as those present felt stifled, gasping for air. Lungs ached, vision blurred, heartbeats stilled, and then the air itself seemed sucked from the hall as darkness filled it. Was it actual physical darkness or a darkness in the mind? Tannis could not be certain. His eyes saw the thousands of torches in the hall flare brilliantly. He saw the thousands of candles sparkling like nights, stars in the night sky. But even the night sky was not darker than the darkness he now perceived. His head swam. Desperately, he tried to breathe, but he might as well have been beneath the blood sea of Istar again. His knees trembled. He was almost too weak to stand. His strength failed him. He staggered and fell, and as he sank down, gasping for breath, he was dimly aware of others here and there falling to the polished marble floor as well. Lifting his head though the move was agony, he could see Kitty R slump forward in her chair as though crushed into the throne by an unseen force. Um, without further ado, the Queen of Darkness. The, 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 the Yeah, Tachesis has come. She's not there in, in physical form yet, but she her spirit is in her. That's why this has happened. Um it's you know if you can imagine a being a god you know 
I've read lots of things with lots of gods in it. Um, the great gods are both under and oversold. You know, they're supposed to be these cosmically powerful pe- beings and all this stuff. I really think that in Dragonlance, they really give the gods, you know, a, a good aspect. Like they're super powerful. Um, you know, they, they, they control this planet and they, and they were, they're from this other place, the beyond of this, of this cosmos, you know, where, you know, she's the embodiment of evil in this place. And then, you know, and then Gillian being the God of neutrality and Paladine being the God of good. So you can't just to imagine what it is to, to even feel the presence of this thing. I think that's a good description is crushing. It just, it, you know, it's like when they say in the Bible where if you saw God's face, you would go mad, you know, because it's just too much for you. That's basically what this is. Uh, she's just, her presence is just too much for these mortals. Um, and then uh, Tannis is able to lift his head. Quote, Tannis lifted his gaze to the magnificent platform that had remained empty throughout the proceedings, empty until now. His blood congealed in his veins. His breath nearly stopped again. Tikhesis, Queen of Darkness, had entered the hall of audience. Other names she had upon Crin. Dragon Queen, she was called in Elven. Nilat the Corrupter to the barbarians of, of the plains. Tamax, the false metal, so she was known in Thurbarden among the dwarves. Mytet, she of many faces, was how they told her from legends among the seafaring people of Urgoth. Queen of many colors and of none, the Knights of Salamnia called her. Defeated by human, Huma, banished from the land not long ago. From the land long ago, Tachesis, Queen of Darkness, had returned. Um, but she's not there yet. As again, she's just as her presence. She's not able to enter the world yet. That's the whole purpose of this thing. The thing keeping her from entering this world is Barum, you know, in in some fashion. Um, that even he doesn't understand. Uh, none of them understand, but that's the last link. Um, so Kediara steps forward, but then before this, the, the queen, you know, speaks and it's enough to hammer everybody to her, to their knees. Quote, I have not brought you together to see your petty quarrels and pettier ambitions make, make more of the victory I sense is fast approaching. Remember who you are, who rules here, Lord Ariacus. Um, because Ryakas was basically, that's what interrupted this, basically break into chaos, this big fight between Kitiara's forces and Ryakas forces. This, had they, had they engaged that right there, the bloodbath would have been something else. So, um, and again, even though Kitty, uh, the, the Tachesis knows it's survival of the fittest, that doesn't serve her purpose at this moment. And, and another time she's like, yeah, kill your, kill your, kill each other. I don't care. You know, um, And then uh, she speaks to Kitiara. Quote, Lord Kitiara, you have pleased us well in the past. Your gift to us now pleases us even more. Bring in the elf woman that may will look upon her and decide her fate. Uh, then here comes Soth carrying uh, the wrapped, not body, because she's still alive, but carrying uh, Lorana. Quote, a figure appeared in the doorway, a dark figure dressed in the army of Anaya Salamnia. Lord Soth entered the hall, and at his coming, the troops fell back from either side of that narrow bridge of his hand, had reached up from the grave and tossed away. In his pallid arms, Lord Soth bore a body bound in white winding cloth, the kind used for embalming the dead. The silence in the room was such that the dead knight's booted footsteps could almost be heard ringing upon the marble floor, though all gathered there could see the stone through the transparent fleshless body. 
Walking forward, bearing his white swath burden, Lord Soth crossed the bridge and walked slowly up to stand upon the snake's head. Another gesture from Kitiara, he laid the bundle of white upon the floor of the dragon high lord's feet. Then he stood and suddenly vanished, leaving everyone blinking in horror to wonder if he had really existed or if they had seen him only in their fevered imaginations. Tannis could see Kitiara smile beneath her helm, pleased at the impact made by her servant. Then, drawing her sword, Kitiara leaned down and slit the bindings that wrapped the figure like a cocoon, giving them a yank. She, she pulled them loose, then stepped back to watch her captive struggle in the web. Tannis caught sight of a mass of tangled, honey-colored hair and the flash of silver armor. Coughing, nearly suffocated by her constrictive bindings, Lorana fought to free herself from the entangling white cloths. There was tense laughter as the troops watched the prisoner's feeble thrashings. This was obviously an indication of more amusement to come. Reacting instinctively, Tannis took a step forward to help Lorana. Kitty R stops him and reminds him, if you die, she dies. Um... She's finally able to get, get Lauren's finally able to get up and well not get up but see. Um she does get to her feet and she's able to finally look around and she sees Kitty Ara quote at the sight of her enemy, the woman who, bet- who had betrayed her, Lorana drew herself to her full height. For a moment, her fear was forgotten in her anger. Imperiously, she glanced beneath her, then above her, her gaze sweeping the great hall. Fortunately, she did not look behind her. She did not see the bearded half-elf dressed in dragon armor who was watching her intently. Instead, she saw the troops of the Dark Queen. She saw the High Lords upon their thrones. She saw the dragons perched above them. Finally, she beheld the shadowy form of the Queen of Darkness herself. I, I love this part with Lorana because <clears throat> despite all this, she's, she keeps her dignity. She stands up. You know, she doesn't cry. She doesn't beg for her life. None of that stuff. They're, they're not going to get that from her. Quote, her face deathly pale. Lorana turned back to look at Kitty R as if she were the only fixed point in a swirling universe. Tana saw Lorana's cl- teeth clench, biting her lips to keep control. She would never show her fear to this woman. She would never show her fear to any of them. Then... Kitty Arm basically she makes a gesture and says Tannis's name. And that's when Lorana sees him. Quote, turning, she saw the half elf, and as Lorana's eyes met his, Tannis saw hope shine. He felt her love for him surround him and bless him like the drawing of spring after winter's br- dawning of spring after winter's bitter darkness. For at last Tannis realized his own love for her was a bond between his two warring halves. It's a good part. It's finally has come to terms with who he is. He loved her with the unchanging eternal love of his elven soul and with the passionate love of his human blood. But the realization had come too late, and now he would pay for the realization with his life and his soul. One look that was all that he could give Lorana. One look that must carry the message of his heart, for he could feel Kitty Ora's brown eyes on him, watching him intently. And other eyes were on him too, dark and shadowy as they might be. Aware of those eyes, Tannis forced his face to reveal nothing of his inner thoughts. Reserting all his control, he clenched his jaw, sh- setting the muscles rigid, keeping his gaze carefully expressionless. Lorana might have been a stranger. Coley turned away from her, and as he turned, he saw Hope's light flicker and die in her luminous eyes. That would be the worst. The worst part of the whole thing. As if a cloud had obscured the sun, the warmth of Lorana's love turned to bleak despair, chilling Tannis with, with its sorrow. Kitty R stands forward now and she tells the Tekesis that this is the gift. I give you the elf woman, Lorana, princess of the Quaunesti elves, leader of the foul knights of Salamnia. It was she who brought back the dragon lances, she who used the dragon orb in the High Claris Tower. It was by her command that her brother and a silver dragon traveled to Sanction where 
through the ineptness of Lord Ariacus, they managed to break into the sacred temple and discover destruction of the good dragon eggs. Ariacus took a menacing step forward, but Kitty Ara coolly ignored him. I give her to you, my queen, to treat her as you would believe her crimes against you merit. Kitty Ara flung Lorana in front of her. Stumbling, the elf woman fell on her knees before the queen. Her golden hair had come loose from its binding and, and tumbled about her in a shining wave that was Titanus's fevered eye, the only light in the vast darkness in the vast dark chamber. She, the, the dragon queen, then tells Kitty Ara to have uh, Lorana escorted uh, to the death chambers, and then she'd get a reward. Um, then she says she has two favors that she would like to ask, and one of them is for Tannis to be taken into the dragon army. Um Quote, I present your humble servant, Tannis Half-Elven. Kitty R. resumed coolly, although Tannis thought he could hear detect a note of relief in her voice. I have named him commander of my armies following the untimely death of my late commander, Bacaris. Let our new servant come forward, came the voice into Tannis's mind. And then Kitty R. says, remember, if she sees that you're false, she's going to kill you. And she's, you know, and not just kill you. You know, you can imagine... This devil character, basically, the Satan of this world, it's not going to be death that you have to be afraid of. It's the eternal torment that's going to follow. So, you know, that would be quite scary. Um, and then Tannis, like, gets down on her knee, um, and then the Tachesis tells him to look at her. Quote, well, no, but <laughs> I should have said this first, but Tannis knows what is riding on this. He knows, you know, if she senses this, then him and Lorana are both dead. He doesn't care about himself so much at this point. He cares about Lorana. He just wants to get out of get her out of there. Of course, I mean, he's come to terms with who he is and and the and the the awful things he thinks he's done, and he has done some bad things. But it's just basically the fact that he didn't see Lorana's love for what it was and chase Kitty R for so long because he just didn't understand himself. Quote. Tannis braced himself, asking for strength from deep inside him, strength he wasn't certain he possessed. If I falter, Lorana is lost. For the sake of love, I must banish love. Tannis lifted his eyes. He was caught and held. Mesmerized, he stared at the shadowy form, shadowy form, unable to free himself. There was no need to fabricate awe and a horrible reverence, for that came to him as if it it comes to all mortals who glimpse her dark majesty. But even as he felt compelled to worship, he realized deep inside he was free. Her power was not complete. She could not consume him against his will. Though Tachesis fought not to reveal this weakness, Tannis was conscious of the great struggle she waged to enter the world. Her shadowy form wavered before his eyes, revealing herself in all her guises, proving she had control over none. First, she appeared to him as a five-headed dragon of Salamnic legend. Then the form shifted, and she was the temptress, a woman whose body men might die to possess. Then the form shifted once again. Now she was a dark warrior, a tall and powerful knight of evil who, te- who held death in his mailed hand. But even as the form shifted, the dark eyes remained constant, staring into Tannis' soul. Eyes of the five dragon heads, eyes of the beautiful temptress, eyes of the filfer warrior. Tannis felt himself shrivel beneath the scrutiny. He could not bear it. He could not have the strength. Abjectly sank one more to his knees, groveling before the queen, despising himself as he heard an anguished, choking cry. That's tough. That's a powerful... You know, I always thought that was one of the best parts of any of the books is the description of a God would be a tough thing to do. I mean, what do you say? It's big. Okay. It's dark. 
okay. You know, I mean, the way you describe that, uh, one of the best descriptions I ever read in any fantasy is Tad Williams describing this demigod uh, called Jack of Chains in uh, the Shadow March books. And it's this giant figure sitting on this throne that's so massive, it just, your eyes can't accept it. You know, it's it's just, a, it's a giant man with like, the, you know, it's just the way he described it was so immense i mean he's able to that writer is able to do that but this is just in its way is just as good just imagine this being that's shifting back and forth between all these things and it's and it's crushing you with with its power you know that's what tennis is facing now but he also realized in this moment that part of this is artifice like she's not all, all powerful like she like she tries to portray herself she's got weaknesses and one of the weaknesses is is that you have to give yourself willingly if if she's going to take you you have to go willingly now, this form of hers can make you do that because it can just fill you with so much fear and stuff that you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know. But he doesn't do that because Lorana's right there. Lorana is the thing that's keeping him from finally caving, you know. So um, we cut back to Caraman, and he's now uh, fighting, trying to fight his way to Barum. Uh, <clears throat> he's running down these, these hallways, these endless hallways beneath the, uh, beneath the temple. Um, quote, and then he saw Barum. Two, two Draconians were slashing at him, their swords gleaming in the torchlight. Barum fought them off with his bare hands as light from the green genstone lit the small enclosed chamber with an eerie brilliance. It was a mark of Barum's insane strength that, there, that he had held them off this long. Blood ran free, freely from a cut across his face and flowed from a deep gash in his side. Even as Caraman dashed to his aid, slipping in the muck, Barum grasped a draconian sword blade in his hand just as its point touched his chest. The cruel steel bit into his flesh, but he was oblivious to pain. Blood, blood poured down his arm as he turned the blade and with a heave shoved the draconian backward. Then he staggered, gasping for breath. The other draconian guard closed in for the kill. They never saw Caraman coming when they were, you know, intent on this. Um, quote, Leaving out of the t- tunnel, Caraman remembered just in time not to stab the creatures or he risked losing his sword. Grabbing one of the guards in his huge hands, he twisted its head, n- neatly snapping its neck. Dropping the body, he met the other draconian savage lunge with a quit-chopping quit motion of his hand to the creature's throat. It pitched backward. Apparently, Caraman knows little uh, martial arts there. Little little chop. Judo chop. Judy chop. <laughs> Uh, we continue, quote, Barum, are you all right? Cameron turned and was staring to, starting to help Barum when he suddenly felt a searing pain rip through, through his side. Gasping in agony, he staggered around to see a draconian behind him. Apparently, it had been hiding in the shadows, perhaps at hearing Caraman's coming. Its sword thrust should have killed, but it was aimed in haste and slanted off Caraman's male armor. Scrabbling for his own sword, Caraman stumbled backward to gain time. Barum kills that one. Um they have a discussion about where they are um, and they're below the temple and Barum, of course knows somehow uh, where they're going. Um, quote, Caraman glanced quickly, glanced quickly around the small stone chamber, but saw nothing. The room was perhaps 20 paces in diameter carved out of rock. The spiral stone stairs ended in this room and across from them, an archway led out. It was toward this archway. Barum had been walking when Caraman caught hold of him peering through the arch. Caraman saw nothing. It was dark beyond so dark. Caraman felt as if we were staring into the great dark darkness. The legend spoke of darkness that existed in the void long before the gods created light. They, are now going down in this uh, 
down into the places these this awful place underneath the temple um it's you know the description i I don't i never you know the descriptions never do it justice it's one of the few things i think that that a cinematic version of this would do better is to give you an idea of the of this place i mean they give you a description and it is good but words fail even the best writers sometimes so um you know that it's it's no place any of us would want to go willingly so you know caraman's injured and another thing you'll notice too caraman's injured now and now we're getting ready to go into something that i call for this book the inception moment that song by the by hans zimmer could play that time song could play here in a second you know only a, a, a maybe a version with that seemingly without hope because now we cut to tika and taz running up a a corridor you know, going up and they smell air like fresh air. And then they find these two doors locked at the end of this corridor quote. The corridor came to an end Two barred wooden doors sealed it shut small windows set into the doors covered with iron grating allowed the night air to blow into the dungeon. She and Taz could see outside. They could see freedom, but they could not reach it. Don't give up. Don't don't give up. Taz said after a moment's pause, recovering quickly, he ran over and pulled on the doors. They were locked. Drat, Taz muttered, eyeing the doors expertly. Karen might have been able to batter his way through them or break the lock with a blow of a sword, but not the Kinder and not Tika. As Taz bent down to examine the lock, Tika leaned against the wall, wearily closing her eyes. Any of this starting to sound familiar? Quote, blood beat in her head. The muscles in her legs knotted in painful spasms. Exhausted, she tasted the bitter salt of tears in her mouth and realized she was sobbing in pain and anger and frustration. Don't take a task, said, hurrying back to pat her hand. It's a simple lock. I can get us out of here in no time. Don't cry, Tika. It'll only take me a little while. You ought to be ready for those draconian in, in case they come. I mean, when they come. But then we have a moment where Taz starts to he sees what's, you know, this is familiar to him. Quote, it was a simple, simple lock he saw with satisfaction. Guarded by such a simple trap, he wondered why they even bought her. Wondered why they even bothered. Simple lock. Bothered. Simple lock. Simple trap. The words rang in his mind. They were familiar. He'd thought them before. Staring up at the doors in astonishment, Taz realized he'd been here before. But no, that was impossible. Shaking his head irritably, Taz fumbled in his pouch for his tools. Then he stopped. Cold fear gripped the kinder and shook him like a dog shakes a rat, leaving him limp. The dream. These had been the doors he saw in the Sylvanesti dream. This had been the lock. The simple, simple lock with a simple trap. And Tika had been behind him fighting, dying. This is... You know, this is where I imagine this. You know, they could have a flash of what happened. Because it, okay, to anybody, I, I'm sure everybody is familiar. This is what happened in Sylvanesti. This is the same scenario. Everybody's separated. Hope seems lost. They're all being pursued. Taz and Tika are by themselves, and all they have to do is get into the tower. Karam is off by himself. He's been injured. Karaman is injured now. You have all these moments stacking up, and I can imagine a Hans Zimmer song, you know, just this this powerful churning song and everybody, and they would do it so well, I know they would, that everybody would realize what's going on, like, oh my God, no, this can't be. You know, it's really an awful moment because how did that end? So for a minute, Tasselhoff is actually scared. He's, he just can't, well, I'll just let him say it. Quote, I don't think I can, Tika, Taz whimpered, staring at the lock in horror. 
Taz, said Tika swiftly and grimly, backing up to talk in without taking her eyes off her enemies. We can't let ourselves be captured. They know about Barum. They'll try to make us tell them what we know about them, Taz, and you know what they'll do to make us talk. You're right, said Taz miserably. That's absolutely accurate right there. I'll try. You've got the courage to walk it, Fizzben had told him. Taking a deep breath, Tasselhoff pulled a thin wire out of one of his pouches. After all, he told his shaking hand sternly, what is death to a kinder but the greatest adventure of all? And then there's Flynn out there, by himself, probably getting into all sorts of scrapes. His hand's now quite steady. Taz inserted the wild carefully into the lock and set to work. Suddenly, there was a harsh roar behind him. He heard Tika shout and the sound of steel clanging against steel. Taz dared a quick look. Tika had never learned the art of swordsmanship, but she was a skilled barroom brawler. Hacking and slashing with the blade, she kicked and gouged and it bit and battered. The fury and ferocity of her attack drove the draconians back a pace. All of them in the slash were bleeding, one wallowed in green blood on the floor, its arm hanging uselessly. And then we have the moment. Taz gets jostled from behind. Quote, Hey, he shouted irritably irritably at Tika, turning around. Be a little more careful. He stopped short. The dream. He had said those exact words, and and as in the dream, he saw Tika lying at his feet, blood flowing into her red curls. No, Taz shrieked in rage. The wire slipped. His hand struck the lock. There was a click as the lock opened, and with the click came another small sound, a brittle sound, barely hurled, a sound like snick. The trap was sprung. Wide-eyed, Taz stared at the tiny spot of blood on his finger, then at the small golden needle protruding from the lock. The draconians had him now, grasping him by the shoulder. Taz ignored them. It didn't matter anyway. There was a stinging pain in his finger, and soon the pain would spread up his arm throughout his body. When it reaches my heart, I won't feel it anymore, he told himself dreamily. I won't feel anything. Then he heard horns, blaring horns, brass horns. He had heard those horns before. Where? That's right. It was in Tarsus, right before the dragons came. Must be some general sort of alarm, Taz thought, noticing with interest that his legs wouldn't hold him up anymore. He slid down to the floor, down beside Tika. Reaching out a shaking hand, he gently stroked her pretty red curls, now matted with blood. Her face was white, her eyes closed. I'm sorry, Tika, he said, his throat constricting. The pain was spreading quickly. His fingers and feet had gone numb. He couldn't move them. I'm sorry, Caraman, I tried. I truly tried. Weeping quietly, Taz sat back against the door and waited for the darkness. This piece of music actually makes me feel this is an awesome thing. This I, I feel like thing about this. This I think this piece of music oddly fits with this. Like it, you know, except the minus the note. This has a note of hope. The song does. Not a lot of hope in this. A little bit more of a minor key, right? Then we cut back to tennis. Quote, Tannis could not move, and for a moment, hearing Lorana's heartbroken sob, he had no wish to move. If anything, he begged a merciful god to strike him dead as he knelt before the Dark Queen, but the gods granted him no such favor. The shadow lifted as the queen's attention shifted elsewhere, away from him. Tannis struggled to his feet, his face flushed with shame. He could not look at Lorana. He dared not even meet Kediara's eyes, knowing well the scorn he would see in their brown depths. Then Kediara plays her final card. She's going to give, she tells the Dark Queen that she's going to give Lord Soth Lorana. And of course, that terrifies Lorana. Uh, quote. Taking a step backward, she looked about her wildly for some escape, but it was impossible. Below her, the floor ride with the draconian staring up at her eagerly. Choking in despair, she glanced once at Tannis. His face was dark and forbidding. He was not looking at her, but stared with burning eyes at the human woman. 
Already regretting her wretched outburst, Lorana determined that she would die before she gave way to any further weakness in front of either of them ever again. Drawing herself up proudly, she lifted her head in control once more. And then Tannis tells Kitty Ari betrayed her. She basically said, of course I did. You're going to ruin everything. Um, then Kitiara tells him that he needs to ascend the platform and lay his sword at uh, Rika's feet. Um, and she says it buys her time. Um, basically, she's just again lying, but it is buying her time. That's not a lie, but you know this whole thing is a farce to her. It's a play. This and. She asked him, he asked her, of course, what is it by time for? Quote, the less you know, the better, Tannis. Kitty, Kitty or smiled charmingly for the sake of those watching. There was some nervous laughter, a few crude, crude jokes of what appeared to be a lover's parting, but Tannis saw no answering smile in Kit's brown eyes. Remember who stands next to be on, upon this platform, Kitty R whispered. Caressing the hilt of her sword, Kit gave Lorana a meaningful glance. Do nothing rash. Turning away from him, she walked back to stand beside Lorana. Trembling in fear and rage, his thoughts whirling in confusion, Tannis stumbled down the stairs leading from the snakehead platform. The noise of the assembly rolled around him like the crash of oceans. Light flashed off spear points. The torch flames burned in his vision. He set his foot upon the floor and began to walk around toward Rika's platform without any clear idea of where he was or what he was doing. Moving by reflex alone, his mate, he made his way across the marble floor. Lifting his head, he stared up bleakly. At the top stood the Lord Lariacus, a huge man, majestic, armed with power. All the light in the room seemed to be drawn into the crown upon his head. Its brilliance dazzled the eyes, and Tannis blinked blind as he began to climb the steps, his hand on his sword. He's now asking himself if Kidiar has actually betrayed him. I mean, I can't believe, in a sense, I can't believe he actually... um, He he forms a plan because he knows Kidiar has betrayed him. So he conceived something pretty crazy. Um, he is going to kill Arrakis and take the crown. And then he commands and he can do, and he can basically march out of there. It's not a very good plan, to be quite honest. I mean, um, but, quote, kill Arrakis, take the crown. It will be simple. Tannis' gaze flashed around the alcohol feverishly. No guards stood beside Arrakis, of course. No one but high lords were allowed on the platforms. But he didn't even have guards on the stairs as, as did the other high lords. Apparently, the man was so arrogant, so secure in his power, he had dispensed with them. Tannis' thoughts raced. Kediwara will trade her soul for that crown. As long as I hold it, she will be mine to command. I can save Lorana. We can escape together. Once we are safely out of here, I can explain things to Lorana. I can explain everything. I'll draw my... Sp- my sword, but instead of being a placing at Laura Rikers' feet, I will run it running through. Once the crown is upon my hand, is in my hand, no one will dare touch me. Seems like a pretty good plan, maybe. I mean, it's desperate, of course, but then Tana sees something that he 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 realizes why there are no guards around 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 the Rikers. Quote, the aura of power surrounding him, Ariacus was a magic user. Blind, stupid fool, Tannis cursed himself. For now, as he draw near, he saw a shimmering wall surrounding the Lord. Of course, that's why there were no guards. Among, his, among this crowd, Ariacus would, would trust no one. He would use his own magic to guard himself. And he was on guard now. That much Tannis could read clearly in the cold, passionless eyes. The half-self's shoulders slumped. He was defeated. And then, strike Tannis. Do not fear his magic. I will aid you. The voice was no more than a whisper, yet so clear and so intense. Tannis could practically feel hot breath touch his ear. His hair raised on the back of his neck. A shudder convulsed his body. 
Shivering, he glanced hastily around. There was no one near him, no one except Ariacus. He was only three steps away, scowling, obviously anxious for the ceremony to come to an end. Seeing Tannis hesitate, Ariacus made a peremptory peremptory that's a tough word peremptory motion for the half-elf to lay his sword at his feet who had spoken suddenly tannis eyes were caught by the sight of a figure standing near the queen of darkness robed in black it escaped his notice before now he stared at it thinking it seemed familiar had the voice come from that figure if so the figure made no sign or movement what should he do he wondered frantically strike tannis whispered once more in his brain swiftly and Tannis does. He picks his sword up right before he's going to land his feet and lunges at Ariacus. Quote, Tannis expected to die. Gritting his teeth as he struck, he breaks himself for the magic shield to wither him like a tree struck by lightning. And lightning did strike, but not him. To his amazement, the, the rainbow wall exploded. His sword penetrated. He felt, he felt it hit solid flesh. A fierce cry of pain and outrage nearly deafened him. Ariacus staggered, staggered backward as a sword blade slid into his chest. A lesser man would have died from that blow. Ariacus' strength and anger held death at bay. His face twisted in hatred. He struck Tannis across the face, sending him reeling to the floor the platform but even he's immortal i mean even he is a, a just a man quote but already but powerful as Ariacus was there was a greater power he could not conquer he choked his mind wavered the words of his magic spell were lost in terrible pain looking down he saw his own blood stain the purple roads the stain grew larger and larger with each passing moment as his life poured from his severed heart death was coming to claim him he could stay it off no longer desperately Ariacus battled for darkness crying out at last to his dark queen for help but she abandoned weaklings Tannis now there's a scramble now we have a very cinematic moment here where there's a scramble for the crown you can imagine like music playing you see all these people lunging for it you know probably in slow-mo <laughs> you can punch up some music uh Tannis is he's going for it but then he sees the last person he would ever want to see. Quote, suddenly a figure in black armor materialized before him. Lord Soth, fighting down a feeling of sheer panic and terror, Tannis kept his mind focused on one thing. The crown was only... Just tell me when to hit the... Go. The crown was only inches beyond his... You can keep going. <laughs> inches beyond his fingers. Desperately, he lunged for it. Thankfully, he felt the cold metal bite into his flesh just as another hand, a skeletal hand, made a grab for it, too. It was his. Soft's burning eyes flared. The skeletal hand reached out to wrest the prize away. Tannis could hear Kitty R's voice shrieking in incoherent things. <laughs> Are you playing Yakety Sacks? You were killing the mood here. But as he lifted the bloodstained piece of metal above his head, as his eyes fixed unafraid upon Lord Soth, the hushed silence in the hall was split by the sound of horns, harsh blaring horns. Lord Soth's hand paused in midair. Midair, Kitty R's voice fell suddenly silent. There was a subdued, ominous murmur from the crowd. For an instant, Tana's pain-clouded mind thought the horns might be sounding in his honor. But then, turning his head to peer dimly into the hall, he saw faces around glancing around in alarm everyone even kitty r looked at the dark queen her dark majesty's shadowy eyes had been on tannis but now their gaze was abstracted her gaze grew and intensified spreading through the hall like a dark cloud reacting to some unspoken command draconians wearing her black insignia ran from their post around to the edge of the hall and disappeared through the doors the black robed figure tannis had had seen standing beside the queen vanished and still the horns blared holding the crown in his hand tannis stared down at it numbly twice before the harsh blaring of the horns had brought death and destruction what was the terrible portent 
of the dread music this time. Um, cuts back to Caraman and Barum, you know, now in this awful, you know, in the awful place below the, the temple. Um, what happened was uh, when they crossed that arch, the that was the alarm that sounded. Um, quote, the arch, it was trapped, Caraman repeated. Well, that's done it. Every living thing in the temple knows we're here, wherever here is. I hope to the gods you know what, you know what you're doing. Um, Barum says something about Jasla calls. That's his sister. Quote, holding the torch aloft, not knowing what else to do or where else to go, Caraman followed. They were in a cavern apparently cut through the rock by flowing water. The archway led to stone stairs, and these stairs, Caraman saw, led straight down into a black, swiftly moving, flowing stream. He flashed the torch around, hoping that there might be a path along the edge of the stream, but there was nothing, at least within the perimeter of his torchlight. Caraman knows that uh, this is the end, like, you know, for good or evil. Um, they're walking through this stream, basically, and it's slippery. The water's really swift. Um, and then, quote, Caraman's weight was wading forward, breathing easier when something struck his leather boot with such force it nearly knocked his feet out from under him. Staggering, he caught hold of Barum. Seemingly attracted by the light, a head lifted out of the shiny wet blackness. Caraman sucked in his breath in horror, and even Barum was momentarily taken aback. Dragons, Caraman whispered. Hatchlings. The small dragon opened its mouth in a shrill scream. Torchlight gleamed on rows of razor-sharp teeth. Then the head vanished, and Caraman felt the creature strike at his boot once more. Another one hit his other leg. He saw the water boiling and flailing tails. These are, you know, young dragon hatchlings. Uh, um, they just, but they have no choice. They have to continue. You know, remember Caraman's losing blood. I can't even imagine what that blood dripping into the water is doing. It's got to be like sharks. Quote, the man, Barum, stared constantly ahead into the darkness, occasionally making moaning sounds and wringing his hands in anxiety. The stream led them around a curve where the water grew deeper. Cameron wondered what he would do if the water rose higher than his boots. The dragging young were still frankly chasing after them, the warm smell of human blood and flesh driving them into a frenzy. The sounds of sword and spear rattling grew louder. Finally, they come to what Barum was looking for, I think. Quote, there it is, Barum said, catching his breath with strangled sob. I see the broken column, the, gem- the jewels gleaming on it, and she is there. She is waiting for me. She has waited all these years. Jazla, he screamed, straining forward. Peering ahead into the darkness, Caraman held Barum back, though he could feel the man's body quivering in motion. He could see nothing, or could he? Yes, a deep sense of thankfulness and relief flooded his pain-wracked body. He could see jewels sparkling in the distance, shining in the blackness with a light it seemed even this heavy darkness could not quench. His confidence returning, Caraman strode forward. A matter of minutes and it would be over, for good or for Chirac, spoke a voice. A bright light flared. Caraman's heart ceased to beat for an instant. Slowly lifted his head to look into that bright light, and there he saw two golden, glittering hourglass eyes staring him from from the depths of a black hood. The breath left his body in a sigh that was like the sigh of a dying man. We come back to the scramble for the crown. Um... Tannis has gotten it, um, and he and he tells Critiari, he says, "Stop! Or I'm going to f- hurl this thing into the crowd." I can't even imagine the awful melee that would <laughs> that would happen. All those evil 
creatures and men and stuff trying to get a hold of that crown because whoever holds the crown rules, you know. Lord Soth threatens to kill him. Um, but then, you know, Tannis basically tells Kitty R that I'll bring you the crown if, quote, Tannis kept walking, and soon he and Lord Soth reached the bottom of the stairs leading up to the platform shaped like the head of the hooded snake. At the top stood Kediara, beautiful in triumph. Tannis climbed the spur-like stairs alone, leaving Soth standing at the bottom, his orange eyes burning in their hollowed sockets. As Tannis saw the reach the top of the platform, the top of the snake's head, he could see Lorana standing beside Kediara. Lorana's face was, pool, was pale, cool, composed. She glanced at him and at the bloodstained crown, then turned her head away. He had no idea what she was thinking or feeling. It didn't matter. He would explain. Kitty Ara basically then thinks that Tannis has really come over to her side. And she tells him he was magnificent and all this stuff. And she says, you can have whatever you want. And Tannis tells her, quote, Lorana, Tannis asked Salt coldly under the cover of the noise. His slightly slanted eyes, the eyes that gave away his hair, stared down at Kitiara's brown eyes. Kit flicked a glance at the elf woman whose gaze was so fixed, whose skin was so pale, she might have been a corpse. If you want her, Kitiara shrugged and drew closer, her voice for him alone. But you will have me, Tannis. By day we will command the armies, rule the world. The knights, Tannis, they will be ours alone, yours and mine. Her breath came fast. Her hands reached up to stroke his bearded face. Place the crown on my head. No, Kitiara, he shouted so that all could hear. One of us rule, rule by day and by night, me. There was laughter in the hall mixed with angry rumblings. Kitiara's widened and shocked and swiftly narrowed. Don't try it, Tennis said, catching her hand as she reached for the knife at her belt. Holding her fast, he looked down at her. I'm going to leave the hall now, he said softly, speaking for her ears alone, with Orana. You and your troops will escort us out of here. When we are safely outside this evil place, I will give you the crown. Betray me and you will never hold it. Do you understand? Kit's lips twisted in a sneer. So she is the true all you care about, she whispered caustically. Truly, Tannis replied, gripping her own heart, he saw pain in her eyes. I swear this on the souls of two I love dearly, stern bright blade of Flint Fireforge. Do you believe me? I believe you, Kitty R said in bitter anger. Looking up at him, the reluctant admiration flamed flared once more in her eyes. You could have had so much. Of course, Lorana doesn't know what's going on at this point. You know, this is She's just kind of standing there, you know. I can't even imagine what's going through her head of the, the heartbreak of seeing this man she's always loved and thought was a good man, you know, just giving him his soul over to evil and this woman who, you know, is the antithesis of everything she's ever been. Tannis grips her arm, and tells her to come with him. Quote, Lorana did not flinch at his touch. She did not react at all. Moving her head slowly, the honey blonde hair falling in a tangled mass around her shoulders, she looked at him. The green eyes were without recognition, expressionless. He saw nothing in him, not fear, not anger. It will be all right, he told her silently, his heart aching. I will explain. There was a flash of silver, a blur of golden hair. Something struck Tannis hard in the chest. He staggered backward, grasping for Lorana as, as he stumbled, but he could not hold her. This is a badass moment on Lorana's part. This is... This is the shit. This is heroic. Shoving him aside, Lorana sprang at Kitiara, her hand grabbing for the sword Kit wore at her side. Her move caught the human woman completely by surprise. Kit struggled briefly, fiercely, but Lorana already had her hands upon the hilt. With a smooth moment, movement, she yanked Kit's sword from the scabbard and jabbed the sword hilt into Kitiara's face, knocking her to the platform. Turning, Lorana ran to the edge. 
that's awesome. You know, especially Kitty R is a trained, you know, a trained warrior, and Lorana is too. But you know, Lorana really showed her prowess and you know a lot of wherewithal with this. You know, you know, never going down. Uh, Lorana's, you know, Team Lorana for life. Somebody put that on the on the uh, one of the comments, and that's. I, mean, I think everybody who read these books would agree. She's just the absolute best character in uh, in the entire series. I feel in in so many ways. Uh, Tannis tries to stop her. Um, he's trying to, but she puts the sword point to his to his throat. Don't move, Tannis. Lorana ordered. Her green eyes were dilated with excitement. She held the sword point with unwavering steadiness. Or you will die. I will kill you if I have to. You see, Tannis, I'm not the lovesick child you knew. I'm not my father's daughter living in my father's court. I'm not even the golden general. I am Lorana, and I will live or die on my own without your help. Lorana, listen to me, Tannis pleaded, taking another step forward, reaching up to thrust aside the sword blade that cut into his skin. He saw Lorana's lips press together tightly. Her green eyes glinted. Then, sighing, she slowly lowered the sword blade to his armor-plated chest. Tannis smiled. Lorana shrugged and, with a swift thrust, shoved him backward off the platform. Then that crown that he had on his head is now tumbling into the crowd, um, and Kittyara loses it, you know. Tell you know, tell him to bring her, bring me that crown. You know, um, that's all. That's all that's important to her. Quote. But she was definitely not the only one shouting. All around the hall of audience, the high lords were on their feet, ordering their troops forward. The dragon sprang into the air. The dark queen's five-headed body filled the hall with shadow, exulting in this test of strength that would provide her with the strongest commanders, her survivors. That's actually not very smart on her part. She should see that this whole thing's falling apart. Claw draconian feet, booted goblin feet, steel shod, steel shod human feet trampled over Tannis. Struggling to stand, fighting desperately to keep from being crushed, he tried to follow that silver flash. He saw it once, then it was gone, lost in the melee. A twisted face appeared in front of him, dark eyes flashed. A spear butt smashed into his side. Groaning, Taz collapsed to the, Tannis collapsed to the floor as chaos erupted in the hall of audience. That's what we were talking about. <clears throat> This principle of evil turning it in upon itself that has begun. You know, they're all scrambling for that crown. All these dragon high lords know they get that crown. They're they're going to be the one the power in command. And the dark queen is, you know, backing it. She's like, yeah, fight amongst yourselves. You know, find out who is the strongest. That way, I'll win. That's not the way it works. And even a goddess, you know, she learns her lesson. You know, much to the world's sorrow later. But right now, she hasn't learned it. Go back to Caraman, who now is faced with, quote, Raceland. It was a thought not spoken. Caraman tried to talk, but no sound came over his throat. Yes, my brother, said Raceland, answering his brother's thoughts as usual. It is I, the last guardian, the one you must pass to reach your goal, the one her dark majesty commanded to be present if the trumpet should sound. Raceland smiled derisively, and I might have known it would be you who had foolishly tripped my spell trap. Raced, Caraman began and choked. For a moment, he could not speak. Warm out from pair, from pain and fear and loss of blood, shivering in the cold water, Caraman found this almost too much to bear. It would be easier to let the dark waters close over his head, let the sharp teeth of the young dragons tear his flesh. The pain could not be, be nearly so bad. Then he felt Barum stir beside him. The man was staring at Raceland vaguely, not understanding. He tugged on Caraman's arm. Jazla calls. We must go. Um... This is a, a moment where <clears throat> it's, 
it's again this this inception moment where Raceland is now wearing the black robes. Remember, he hadn't worn those um, when Karen, when he and Carolyn had last been around each other. You know, when uh, Raceland had used the dragon orb to get him, himself and only himself to escape from the ship in the Blood Sea of Estar. He was still a red robe magician. And also, there's something different about him. He's he's stronger. He's um, his his voice is stronger. He's Caraman notices he's changed. There's a lot to this that is comes after all this. And I can't really discuss a lot of it because it will give another a, a show down the line away. But it is a massive, major change, and it is a very mind-bending change. Like, it's time travel. It's, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's really cool. Um Quote, shivering as he thought of what he must do, Caraman continued, and your voice, it's stronger, different, like you, and yet not like you. That is a long story, Caraman Racel replied. In time, you may come to hear it, but now you're in a very bad situation, my brother. The draconian guards are coming. Their orders are to capture the Everman and take him to before the Dark Queen. That will be the end of him. He is not immortal, I assure you. She has spells that will unravel his existence, leaving him little more than thin threads of flesh and soul wafting away on the winds of the storm. Then she will devour his sister, and at last, the Dark Queen will be free to enter Kryn in her full power and majesty. She will rule the world and all the planets of heaven, planes of heaven and the abyss. Nothing will stop her. This is Raceland's job. Uh, Tekisis has, you know, kind of a powerful guy to employ as a watchdog. Um, but, you know, she is a goddess, and he's still just a mortal. But Caraman uh, basically says, you know, you, you know what I have to do. You know, I can't let this happen. Um, and he says, if you work your magic, um, Baron will be free to go. Uh, you can't kill him. He says, you basically can't kill him and me at the same time um, if I'm attacking you. Um, quote. You, my dear brother, Raceland said softly. Yes, I can kill you. Standing, he, standing, he raised his hand before Caraman could yell or think or even fling up his arm. A ball of flame lit the darkness as if his son had dropped into it, bursting full upon Caraman and smote him backward into the black water. Burned and blinded by the brilliant light, stunned by the force of the impact, Caraman felt himself losing consciousness, sinking beneath the dark waters. Then sharp teeth bit into his arm, tearing away the flesh. The searing pot pain brought back his failing senses screaming in agony and terror caraman fought frankly to rise out of the deadly stream shivering uncontrollably he stood up the young dragons having tasted blood attacked him striking his leather brutes in frenzied frustration clutching his arm caraman looked over quickly at barum saw to his dismay that barum hadn't moved an inch Raceland then looks at him, quote, I am powerful, Caraman Raceland said, staring coldly in the anguished eyes of his twin. With Tana's unwitting help, I was able to rid myself of the one man upon Kryn who could have bested me. Now I am the most powerful force for magic in this world, and I will be more powerful still with the Dark Queen gone. 
Cameron looked at his brother dazedly, unable to comprehend. Behind, behind him, he heard splashes in the water and the draconian shouting in triumph. Too stupefied to move, he could not take his eyes from his brother. Only dimly, when he saw Raceland raise his hand to make a gesture toward Barum, did Cameron begin to understand. At that gesture, Barum was freed. The Everman cast one quick backward glance at Caraman, and at the draconians plunging through the water, their curved swords flashing in the light of the staff. Finally, he looked at Raceland standing upon the rock in his long black robes. Then, with a joyful cry that rang through the tunnel, Barum leaped toward the jeweled column. Jasla, I'm coming! Remember my brother Raceland's voice echoed in Caraman's mind. This happens because I choose it to happen. Looking back, Caraman could see the draconians screaming in rage at the sight of their prey escaping. The dragons tore his leather boots. His wounds hurt horribly, but Caraman didn't notice. Turning again, he watched Darum run toward the jeweled column as if he were watching a dream. Indeed, it seemed less real than a dream. Perhaps it was his fevered imagination, but as the Everman neared the jeweled column, the green light in his chest seemed to glow with a light more brilliant than Raceland's burst of flame. Within that light, the pale, shimmering form of a woman appeared inside the jeweled column. Dressed in a plain leather tunic, she was pretty in a fragile, winsome way, very like Barum in the eyes that were too young for her thin face. And finally, you know, Barum has come face to face with his sister again, who accident who he accidentally killed. We've discussed that, how he they had gotten into an argument. And he had pushed her down. Or he'd pushed her down, then she struck her head against the column and he accidentally killed her. And he says, Jasla, spreading his arms, can you forgive me? There was no sound except the hushed swirl of the water around them, the steady dripping of moisture from the rocks, as it had fallen from time memorial. My brother, between us, there is nothing to forgive. The image of Jasla spread her arms wide in welcome, her winsome face filled with peace and love. With an incoherent cry, incoherent cry of pain and joy, Baron flung himself into his sister in her arms. Caraman blinked and gasped. The image vanished. Horrified, he saw the Everman hurl his body upon the jeweled stone column with such force that his flesh was impaled on the sharp edges of the jagged rock. His last scream was a terrible one, terrible yet triumphant. Barum's body, Barum's body shook convulsively. Dark blood poured over the jewels, quenching their light. Barum, you failed. It was nothing. A lie. Yelling hor- hoarsely, Caraman plunged toward the dying man, knowing that Barum would die. This was all crazy. He would... Caraman stopped. The rocks around him shuddered. The ground shook beneath his feet. The black water ceased its flow and was suddenly sluggish, uncertain, sloshing against the rocks. Behind him, he heard the draconian shouting in alarm. Caraman stared at Barum. The body lay crushed upon the rocks. It, stag- it stirred slightly, as if bringing a final sigh. Then it did not move. For an instant, two pale shivers, figures shimmered inside the jeweled column. Then they were gone. The Everman was dead. That was a that is the official end of Barum. Like he, <clears throat> that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, he was supposed to be captured by the draconians. That's why they were chasing him. Tekisas had put Raceland there to make sure that he was caught, but it didn't happen. So we're going to see why that is. And we're back to Tannis. Quote, Tannis lifted his head from the, from the floor of the hall to see a hobgoblin spear raised about to plunge it into his body rolling quickly he grabbed the creature's booted foot and yanked the hobgoblin crashed to the floor where another hobgoblin this one dressed in a different colored uniform smashed his head open with a mace basically the whole place is just going to hell everybody's fighting amongst themselves i mean this is the as i said the literal expression of evil turning in upon itself yeah Kit's eyes were fixed in Tannis with hatred as she pointed at him. Lord Soth made a gesture, sending his skeletal followers flowing from the snake-headed platform like a wave of death, destroying everything within their path. Every time I hear snake-headed platform, you know what I think of? 
Skeletor, Snake Mountain. <laughs> it actually is a pretty fitting image. Tannis turned to flee, but found himself entangled in the mob. Frankly, he fought, aware of the chill force behind him. Panic flooded his mind, nearly depriving him of his senses. And then there was a sharp cracking sound. The floor trembled beneath his feet. The fighting around him stopped abruptly as everyone concentrated on standing upright. Tannis looked around uncertainly, wondering what was happening. A huge chunk of mosaic-covered stone tumbled from the ceiling, falling to a mass of draconians who stumbled, scrambled to get out of the way. The stone was followed by another and yet another. Torches fell from the walls. Candles dropped down were extinguished in their own wax. The rumbling of the ground grew stronger. Half-turning, Tana saw that even the skeletal warriors had halted, flaming eyes seeking those of their leader in fear and questioning. I didn't like that part. I don't think they, any of them should be afraid. I mean, that's not like they're going to die. They should basically just be going, what the hell? You know, all these other people are going to die, but we're going to be fine. But what's going on? You know, um, the f- it continues, quote, the floor suddenly canted away from beneath his feet, grabbing hold of a column for support. Tannis stared about in wonder, and then darkness fell upon him like a crushing weight. He has betrayed me. The Dark Queen's anger beat in Tannis's mind, the rage and fear so strong that it nearly split his skull. Crying aloud in pain, he grasped his head. The darkness increased as Takisa, seeing her danger, sought desperately to keep the door to the world ajar. Her vast darkness quenched the light of every flame. Wings of night filled the hall with blackness. That just sends everything. <clears throat> we all know who the he is. Raceland has, you wouldn't call it a face turn because he's still doing this for his own. What would you call that in wrestling if they're not necessarily a good guy, but they've turned? They're like a tweener. Yeah. Like an anti-hero kind yeah, of, sort of like, like a Stone Cold moment Stone Cold But he was so over He couldn't help but be a good guy But he was never really a good guy Right Well that's what Raceland has done He was supposed to do this thing And uh, He has betrayed Tekesis Because he His We'll get into later point In later books About how How insane Raceland's grasp for power is And how it causes some serious consequences, you know, for everything. But, you know, just know for this moment that even gods eventually shudder because of him. But then, um, you know, as I said, the whole hall just erupts into chaos. Everybody trying to kill each other. I'm trying to get out. Quote, Takisa's queen of darkness hung over them in her living form upon this plane. Her gigantic body shivered in a myriad colors. So many, so blinding, so confusing. The senses could not comp- comp- comprehend her awful majesty and blotted the colors from the minds of mortals, many colors and none. So Takisa seemed. The five heads opened each wide. The five heads each opened the wider gaping mouths, fire burning in a multitude of eyes, as if each were intent upon devouring the world. All is lost, Tannis thought in despair. This is the moment of her ultimate victory. We have failed. The five heads reared up in triumph. The dome ceiling split apart. The temple of Istar began to twist and writhe, rebuilding, reforming, returning to the original shape it had known before darkness perverted it. Within the hall itself, the darkness wavered and then was shattered by the silver beams of Solinari, called by the dwarves Night Candle. Um, Barum dying the way he did ensured that Tachesis could not re-enter the world. She had to get him and, and, you know, 
you know, use him somehow to get back in the world. I, I never quite figured that out. I'm quite honest. Um, you know, it's, it is complicated. I, I mean, I'll grant it that, but you know, it was just, you know, it didn't go her way because of Raceland. Raceland did the anti-hero turn and, uh, banished her. Well, not forever. I mean, at least for this moment forever. Um, and then, um, we cut back to the twins again, quote, and now my brother, farewell. Raceland drew forth a small round globe from the folds of his black robes, the dragon orb. Cameron felt his strength seep from him. Placing his hand upon the bandage, he found it soaked, sticky with blood. His head swam. The light from the brother's staff wavered before his eyes. Far away, as if in a dream, he heard the draconians shake loose from their terror and start toward him. The ground shook beneath his feet. Perhaps it was his legs trembling. Kill me, Raceland. Cameron looked at his brother with eyes that had lost all expression. Raceland paused, his golden eyes narrowed. Don't leave me to die at their hands, Caraman said calmly, asking a simple favor. Enter for me now, quickly. You owe me that much. Then this whole part of this, next part of this book, is Raceland settling his 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 accounts, paying back all his debts, basically. So he doesn't owe anybody anything. Um, they start to. They start to walk up the hallway. Um, he's going to help Caraman out. Quote. Instantly, the underground cavern's darkness was lit today like brilliance with the fiery power of Raceland's magic. Caraman's sworded hand could only stand by his black water, black robed brother and watching all his foe after foe fell to Raceland's spells. You know, they were going to be attacked by all these creatures serving, surging toward him and then Raceland reveals how powerful he is. Lightning crackled from his fingertips. Flame flared from his hands. Phantasm appeared, so terrifyingly real to those looking at them that they could kill by fear alone. Goblins fell screaming, pierced by the lances of a legion of knights who filled the cavern with their war chants at Raceland's bidding, then disappeared at his command. The baby dragons fled in terror back to the dark and secret places of their hatching. Draconians withered black in the flames. Dark clerics who swarmed down the stairs at their queen's last bidding were impaled upon a flight of shimmering spears. Their last prayers changed to wailing curses of agony. Finally came the black robes, the eldest of the order, to destroy this young upstart. But they found to their dismay that, old as they were, Raceland was in some mysterious way older still. His power was phenomenal. They knew within an instant that he could not be defeated. The air was filled with the sounds and the chanting, and one by one, they disappeared as swiftly as they had come, many bowing to Raceland in profound respect as they departed upon the wings of wish spells. That's awesome. All these powerful wizards being like, uh, nope. <laughs> we're checking out. I got a thing. Yeah. This guy's way too powerful. We're out of here. Um, and continues, quote, and then it was silent, the only sound the sluggish lapping of water. The staff of Magus cast its crystal light. Every few seconds, a tremor shook the temple, causing Caraman to glance above them in alarm. The battle apparently lasted only moments, although it seemed to Caraman's fevered mind that he and his brother had been in this horrible place all their lives. When the last mage melted into the blackness, Raceland turned to face his brother. You see, Caraman, he asked coldly. Wordlessly, the war- big warrior nodded, his eyes wide. The ground shook around them, the water and the stream sloshed up on the rocks. At the cavern's end, the jeweled column shivered, then split. Rivulets of rock dust trickled down into trickled down onto Raceland's upturned face as he stared at the crumbling ceiling. What does it mean? What's happening? He asked in alarm. It means the end, Raceland stated. Folding his black words around, he glanced at Caraman in irritation. We must leave this place. Are you strong enough? 
Yeah, give me a moment, Caraman grunted. Pushing himself away from the rocks, he took a four step forward, then staggered, nearly falling. I'm weaker than I thought, he mumbled, clutching his side in pain. Just let me catch my breath. Straightening, his lips pale, sweat trickled down his face. Caraman took another step forward. Smiling grimly, Rayson watched his brother stumbled toward him. Then the mage held out his arm. Lean on me, my brother, he said softly. That's another replay from, remember, the scenario at uh, Sylvanesti, because... This is just this whole thing was basically just a premonition. It was showing, you know, the, the Ragnarok was so powerful it could see the future and was showing them the future in this awful dream that became real. Then we uh, cut back to Tannis and he's running through this. The hall of audience is just crumbling. The whole palace is crumbling. The whole temple. Basically, the, what this was is the uh, is a perverted version of the uh, the the temple of the high priest of Istar, the king priest of Istar. Quote: The vast vaulted ceiling of the hall of audience split wide. Huge blocks of stone crashed down into the hall, crushing everything that lived beneath them. Instantly, the chaos in the hall ge- degenerated into terror stricken panic. Ignoring the stern commands of their leaders, who reinforced these commands with whips and sword thrusts, the Triconians fought to escape the destruction of the temple, brutally slaughtering anyone, including their own comrades who got in their way. Occasionally, some extremely powerful dragon highlord would manage to keep his bodyguard under control and escape, but several fell, cut down by their own troops, crushed by falling rock, or trampled to death. Um, Tannis is uh, running through this. Just imagine this awful scene, all this death around him, the place crumbling. He's just chasing Lorana, trying to catch her, you know, trying to tell her what happened, trying to get him out of there. Um. And then she almost catches him, and she turns and sees him, and she says, quote, Farewell, Tannis, Lorana called to him in Elven. I owe you my life, but not my soul. With that, she turned and left him, stepping through the doorway of the antechamber, vanishing to the darkness beyond. A piece of the temple ceiling crashed to the stone floor, showering Tannis with debris. For a moment, he stood wearily, staring after her. Blood dripped into one eye. Absently, he wiped it away. Then suddenly, he began to laugh. He laughed in tears mingled with the blood. Then he pulled together, together, himself together and, gripping his bloodstained sword, disappeared into the cavern after her. We come back to Karim and Raceland, and they're, talking, they're, they're going to the hallway that uh, Tika and Taz, you know, the one where they walk down the hallway and the trap was sprung and all that stuff. Um, the Raceland basically confirms the whole thing about that being a premonition. Quote, they were fools, Raceland said bitterly. The dream warned them. He glanced at his brother as it warned others. Still, I may be in time, but we must hurry. Listen. Um, this is, again, Raceland trying to settle his death. He He's not doing this for any love of any of these people, which is, you know, I can't imagine there's not a moment where, because Tika was in awe of Raceland, like she, for how powerful he was and how smart he was. You know, I even think that deep down inside, she probably was attracted to him a little bit because of that. You know, she loved Caraman, of course, because Caraman's a big, handsome guy, and she's always loved the lug, you know what I mean? But um, then they come to where they're laying, quote, Turning deathly pale, Caraman dashed down the corridor, corridor toward the door. Shaking his hooded head, Raceland followed slowly after. Rounding the corner, he found his brother crouching beside two bodies on the floor. Tiga, Caraman moaned. Brushing back the red curls from the still white face, he felt for a life beater in her neck. He, his eyes closed a moment in thankfulness. Then he reached out to touch the kinder. And Taz, no, 
Hearing his name, the Kinder's eyes opened slowly as if the lids were too heavy for him to lift. Caraman tested in a broken whisper. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Taz, Caraman gently gathered the small, feverish body into his big arms. Holding him in close, he rocked him back and forth. Taz, don't talk. The Kinder's body twitched in convulsions. Glancing around in heartbroken sorrow, Cameron saw Tassahoff's lying, pouches lying on the floor, their contents scattered like toys in a child's playroom. Tears filled Caraman's eyes. I tried to save her, Taz whispered, shuddering with pain, but I couldn't. You saved her, Taz, Caraman said, choking. She's not dead, just hurt. She'll be fine. Really? Taz's eyes, burning with fever, brightened with a calmer light than dimmed. I'm afraid I'm not fine, Caraman, but it's all right, really. I'm going to see Flint. He's waiting for me. He shouldn't be out there by himself. I don't know how he could have left without me anyway. Um, then race one does something that's almost selfless. Uh, he knows that, uh, Taz has been poisoned and he says, well, I can help him, but you're going to have, you're going to have to tell us, Cameron, you're going to have to keep these, keep them off of me. Cause they're like the, you know, foes coming from around are going to, you know, attack them. And he says, if they break my concentration, we both could die. It, it's kind of a mark of, Deep down, he kind of liked Tasselhoff, I bet, and he was willing to risk his life for him to a certain extent anyway. And, um, you know, to help get the poison out of him. It's a, they describe the process. He puts a pearl in his mouth and a pearl in, uh, in Tasselhoff's mouth. It's his big thing. Um, quote. Raceland looked at his brother. He saw him holding Taz in the big hands that could be so gentle. Thus he has held me, Raceland thought. His eyes went to the kinder. Vivid memories of the younger days of carefree adventuring with Flint, now dead. Sturm, dead. Days of warm sunshine, of the green bedding leaves on the Valenwoods of Solace. Nights in the end of the last home, now blacked and crumbling. The Valenwoods burned and destroyed. This is my final debt, Raceland said, paid in full. Ignoring the look of thankfulness that flooded Caravan's face, he instructed, lay him down. You must deal with the draconians. This spell will take all my concentration. Do not allow them to interrupt me. Tico wakes up right there, and he tells her to stay down, you know, act like you're unconscious. Um, Then Raceland goes to the spell. Quote, removing a luminous white pearl from an inner pocket, Raceland held it firmly in one hand while he took out a gray-green leaf from another. Prizing, that should be, uh, maybe that is, maybe prizing is the right word to use that right there, but I don't know. Prying the kinder's clenched jaws open, Raceland placed the leaf behind beneath Tasselhoff's swollen tongue. The maid studied the pearl for a moment, calling to mind the complex words of the spell, reciting them to himself mentally until he was certain he had them in their proper order and knew the crock correct pronunciation of each he would have one chance and one chance only if he failed not only would the kinder die but he might very well die himself placing the pearl upon his own chest over his heart Rayson closed his eyes and began to repeat the words of the spell chanting the line six times making the proper changes in the inflection each time with a thrill of ecstasy he felt the magic flow through his body drawing out a part of his own life force capturing it within the pearl the first part of the spell complete Rayson held the pearl poised above the kinder's heart closing eyes once more he recited the spell but Again, this time backward. Slowly, he crushed the pearl in his hand, scattering the iridescent power over Tasselhoff's rigid body. Raceland came to an end. Wearily, he opened his eyes and watched in triumph as the lines of pain faded from the kinder's features, leaving them filled with peace. Taz's flies flew open. Raceland, I pluey. Taz spit out the green leaf. What kind of nasty thing was that? And how did it get into my mouth? <laughs> 
Taz set up dizzily, then he saw his pouches. Hey, who's been messing with my stuff? Glancing at the mage accusingly, his eyes opened wide. Raceland, you have on black robes. How wonderful. Can I touch them? Oh, all right. You needn't glare at me like that. It's just they look so soft. Say, does this mean you're truly bad now? Can you do something evil for me so I can watch? I know I saw a wizard summon a demon once. Could you do that? Just a small demon? You could send him right back. No, Taz sighed in disappointment. Well, hey, Caraman, what are those draconians doing with you? What's the matter with Tika? <laughs> he was, you know, I highly suspect I shouldn't have recited that whole thing with the whole spell, but I couldn't resist, you know, just Tasselhoff's reaction at the end of it, you know, just coming out of it and just being, you know, so quintessentially Tasselhoff. Um, as I've said before, Kinder probably the most one of the most wonderful creations of this uh, of this world. You know, uh, there are no halflings like hobbits in Dragonlance. There are just uh, Kinder. So, um, then Rayson's going to lead him out, um, and Caraman uh, grabs off and throws him on his shoulder, basically. And Tannis and, and Tassoff shrieks, they're leaving his stuff. Quote, but my things, wailed Taz, whisking around. Keep moving, Caraman growled. Oh, well, the kinder sighed, his eyes lingering fondly on his precious possessions lying scattered on the bloodstained floor. This probably isn't the end of my adventuring. And after all, empty pockets hold more, as my mother used to say. Stumbling among behind the two, two draconians, Taz looked up into the starry heavens. I'm sorry, Flynn, he said softly. Just wait for me a moment longer. Then we cut back to uh, Kitty Ara um, trying to hold the thing together. Um, Tannis still pursuing uh, Lorana. Quote, by now the fighting within the hall had ended. The dragon highlords who survived had made good their escapes and were now among their own forces stationed outside the temple walls. Some fought, some retreated, waiting to see who would come out on top. Two questions were on every mind, on everyone's mind. The first, would the dragons remain in the world or would they vanish with their queen as they had fallen the second dragon war? And second, if the dragons remained, who would be their master? Tannis found himself pondering these questions confusedly he ran through the hall, sometimes taking wrong turns and cursing bitterly as he confronted a solid wall and was forced to retrace his steps to where he could once again feel the air upon his face. But eventually he grew too tired to ponder anything. Exhaustion and pain were taking their toll. His legs grew heavy. It was an effort to take a step. His head throbbed. The cut of his eye began to bleed again. The ground shook continually beneath his feet. Stat- statues toppled from their bases. Stones fell from the ceiling, showering him with clouds of dust. He began to lose hope. Even though he was certain he was traveling in the only direction she could possibly have taken, the few draconians he passed out now had not seen her. What could have happened? Was she? No, he wouldn't think of that. He kept going, conscious even of the fragrant breath of air on, on his face or of smoke billowing past him. The torches had started fires. The temple was beginning to burn. He he sees the Rana then, and he was... She had done something quite brilliant. She had taken off her armor and put on draconian armor, so she'd be less conspicuous. Um, he shouts at her, uh, an elven word for beloved, um, and, quote, 
Cursing the broken columns and marble blocks in his path, Tam stumbled and ran and stumbled and fell and forced his aching body to obey him until he caught up with her. Grasping her by the arm, he dragged her to a stop, then could only hold on to her tightly as he slumped against a wall. Each breath he took was fiery pain. He was so dizzy he thought for a moment he might pass out, but he grasped her with a death-like grip, holding her with his eyes as well as his hand. Now he knew why the dr- draconians had, hadn't seen her. She had struffed off his silver armor, covering with draconian armor she had taken from a dead warrior. For a moment, she could only stare at Tannis. She had not recognized him at first, and she had nearly run him through with her sword. The only thing that had stopped her was the Elven word, beloved. I'm not going to say that word. That and the intense look of anguish and suffering on his pale face. Lorana, Tannis gasped in, in a voice as shattered as Lysons had once been. Don't leave me. Wait, listen to me, please. With a twist of her arm, Lorana broke free of his grip, but she did not leave him. She started to speak, but another shudder of the building silenced her. As dust and debris poured down around them, Tannis pulled Lorana close, shielding her. They clung to each other fearfully, and then it was over. But they were left in darkness. Tannis had dropped the torch. This is the moment from the dream that Tannis had. He's now... He's there with Lorana, and then Kitiara shows up. Um, he asked Lorana if she's I'll read what he says to her quote Lorana Taz said softly breathing heavily I don't ask you to understand I don't understand I ask for I don't ask forgiveness for forgiveness I can't even forgive myself I could tell you that I love you that I've always loved you but that wouldn't be true for love must come from within one who loves himself and right now I can bear to see, bear to see my own reflection all I can tell you Lorana and then Kitty R steps out. Tell her on a what, Tannis, said Kiara in a pleasant voice. Go on. A naked sword gleamed in her hand. Wet blood, both red and green, glistened on the blade. Her face was white with stone dust. A trickle of blood ran in her chin from a cut on her lip. Her eyes were shattered with weariness, but her smile was still as charming as ever. Sheeting her bloody sword, she wiped her hands upon the tattered cloak, then ran them abs- absently through her curly hair. Um, this is this is was Tannis's you know, worst nightmare, basically being caught between both these women he loved and his nature. But now he knows who he is. Quote, let her go. Kitty R. Tennis said quietly, gripping Lorana firmly. Keep your promise and I'll keep mine. Let me take her outside the walls. Then I'll come back. I really believe you would. Kitty R. Remarked, staring at him in amused wonder. Hasn't it occurred to you at half elf that I could kiss you and kill you without drawing a deep breath in between. No, I don't suppose it has. I might kill you right now, in fact, simply because I know it would be the worst thing I could do to the elf woman. She held the flaming t- torch near Lorana. There, look at her face, Kitty Ara sneered. What a weak and debilitating thing love is. That is the most narcissistic thing that anyone could ever say. Um, I had a, there's a moment in train spotting. That's an odd thing to think of this when they're all talking about their addictions and uh, Renton is talking about Francis Begbie, who was played by Robert Carlyle and said he didn't do drugs. He did people, his own sensory addiction. That's what Kitty R's is. She loves messing with people, destroying people. She's an awful, awful dark hearted person. Um, But then she, tries to oddly enough she says she's going to establish her she's going to be the one in charge and she is this is kitty ara chaos is a ladder little uh peter bailey said that little finger and she's really climbing it um and she offers herself offers tannis you know you know what what about it come on you can come with me 
And then Lord Soth starts their approach. And she tells Tannis to make his decision. And he does, quote, My decision was made a long time ago, Kitty Ara, Tannis said calmly. Stepping in front of Lorana, he shielded her as best as he could with his own body. Lord Soth will have to kill me to reach her, Kit. And even though I know my death will not stop him or you from killing her when I have fallen, with my last breath I will pray to Paladin and protect her soul. The gods owe me one. Somehow I know that this, my final, par- final prayer, will be granted. Behind him, Tannis felt Lorana lay her head against his back. He heard her sob so sob softly, and his heart eased, for there was not fear in her sob, but only loving and passion and grief for him then she does a really odd thing she tells him to run and i don't i think she did it because she it's never made quite clear because she has an excuse but i don't know if i buy it um because as they're leaving she says this Quote, farewell, half-elven, she said in a soft, passionate voice, her eyes shining brightly in the torchlight. Remember, I do this for love of you. Now go. And she says this is the reason she did it when Lord Soth asks her. He basically said, half-elven's your master still, you know, whatever. That the, basically that, you know, the narcissist thing where the, the one person who loves him and she can't bring herself to really betray him because then she, it's a piece of herself she can't give up. You know what I mean? But she says this. No, I think not, Kitty Ara replied. Turning, she looked after Tannis as the door shut behind him. Sometimes, in the still watches of the night, when he lives, lies in bed beside her, Tannis will find himself thinking of me. He will remember my last words. He will be touched by them. I have given them their happiness, and she must live with the knowledge that I will live always in Tannis' heart. What love they might find together, I have poisoned. My revenge upon them is both, both is complete. That's a pretty cool, hard thing to say, but I don't know if I buy it. Um... Then she basically dismisses him and tells him to go to Dargard Keep, where he's from, and then she'll summon him, and he takes his leave of her. Quote, bowing to her, there's a little bit of uh, foreshadowing in this, too. Bowing to her, he took her hand in a skeletal grasp. Farewell, Kitty Ari, he said, then paused. How does it feel, my dear, to know that you have brought pleasure to the damned? You have made my dreary realm of death interesting. Would that I had known you as a living man? The pallid visage smiled. But my time is eternal. Perhaps I'll wait for you wait for one who can share my throne cold fingers caress kitty r's flesh she shuddered convulsively seeing unending sleepless nights yawn chasm like before so vivid and terrifying was the image that kitty r's soul shivered in fear as lord soth vanished into the darkness she was by herself in the darkness and for a moment she was terrified the temple shuddered around her kitty r shrank back against the wall frightened and alone so alone then her foot touched something on the floor of the temple reaching down her fingers closed around it thankfully she lifted it in her hands this was reality hard and solid she thought breathing in relief no torchlight glittered on its golden surface or flared from its red-hued jewels kitty r did not need the flare of torches to admire what she held for long moments she stood in the crumbling hallway her fingers running over the rough Metal edges of the bloodstained crown. <laughs> you know, one thing that this series does really is everybody pretty much gets what's coming to them, more or less. Um, that's a foreshadowing of what she gets coming to her. Um, I'm not going to reveal it, but uh, everybody who's read these books knows what happens. And I thought it was a pretty fitting, end, fitting ending. And that's something we'll discuss later because I think it's an interesting debate uh, about it. I'll, I'll pose the question when we get there. Then Tannis and Lorana are trying to make their way out of the, uh, the temple. 
quote. Wearily, summing the last of their strength, the two made their way through the winding corridor until they came to a door swinging open on its hinges. There was a reddish bloodstain blood on the floor and Taz's pouches, Tannis murmured. Kneeling down, he sorted through the kinder's treasures that lay scattered all over the floor. Then his heart sank. Grieving, he shook his head. Um, he thinks Taz, I think he thinks Tasselhoff might be dead. Um, but he, he was mad. Tannis was always mad at Paladine, you know, at the gods in general, because he's like, yeah, how dare you put us in the position and everything. Um, I'm going to go through, I was not going to read this whole part, but reading the Kinder's treasures and then what he finds among them is too good to give up. And it's the last part of it is obviously a, par, a piece I would have to read, quote. Gently, he pushed Laurent away from him as he leaned over, his hands searching through Tassahoff's scattered treasures. Hurriedly, he swept aside a shining piece of broken blue crystal, a, f- a splinter of Valenwood, an emerald, a small white chicken feather, a withered black rose, a dragon's tooth, and a piece of wood carved with dwarven skill to resemble the kinder. That is one of the sweetest things ever. Flint made that for him. Among all of these was a golden object sparkling in the flaming light of the fire and destruction outside. Picking it up, Tannis eyes filled with tears. He held it tightly in his hand, feeling the sharp edges bite into his flesh. What is it? asked Lorana, not understanding, her voice choked with fear. Forgive me, Paladine, Tannis whispered. Drawing Lorana close beside him, he held his hand out, opening his palm. There in his hand lay a finely carved, delicate ring of made in golden, clinging ivy leaves, and wrapped around the ring, still banded his magical, magical sleep, was a golden dragon. Remember, Pyrite had been turned by Fizban into that tiny dragon and Tesselhoff carried him with him. They weren't be able to, they weren't going to be able to get away. That's that was the whole point of that. Is that the temple was crumbling and there's no way to get out. So they were basically resigned to death. But then they found that. Um we cut to you know, this is the aftermath. This I know this has been a long episode, but there was a lot to get through and there wasn't just there wasn't so much uh, I had to read a bunch of it, and it has been a difficult show, I'll admit, but I think it's been a good one. Um, Raislin and Karaman and Al and Tika and Taz have gotten to the outskirts of you know Naraka, and they're going to go see um, Fizban. Um, and Raislin says. Uh, a meeting between us would not be pleasant. <laughs> um, and you'll find out something that we've all known all along. But then uh, Raceland pulls a, a dragon orb from out of his pouch. And a familiar character shows up. Quote, One, once more Raceland held the dragon orb in his hand. Closing eyes, Raceland began to chant softly. Color swirled within the crystal, then it began to glow with a brilliant, radiant beam of light. Raceland opened his eyes, scanning the skies, waiting. He did not wait long. Within moments, the moon and stars were obliterated by a gigantic shadow. Tika fell back in alarm. Karen bit his hand around her comfortingly. His arm around her comfortingly, though his body trembled and his hand went to his sword. A dragon said to us off and all, but it's huge. I've never seen one so big, or have I? It seems familiar somehow. You have, Raceland said coolly, replacing the darkened crystal orb back in his black pouch. In the dream, this is Cyan Bloodbane, the dragon who tormented poor Lorak, the Elven King. There he is. Oh, Cyan Bloodbane. He'd be, that'd be a heavyweight flight right there to see who, what dragon is bad enough to take him down. And then we have a, 
a little bit from Cyan's point of view. Quote, for a moment, Cyan glanced at this pitiful group of humans huddled together. His red eyes flared. His tongue flicked between slavering jowls. He stared at them with hatred. Then, constrained by a will more powerful than his own, Cyan's gaze was wrenched away, coming to rest in resentment and anger upon the black-robed mage. Remember, he's not doing this because he likes the guy. He's doing it because the guy's more powerful than him. At a gesture from race on the dragon's great head lowered until it rested in the sand. Leaning wearily upon the staff of Magius, Raceland walked over to Cyan Bloodbane and climbed upon the huge snaking neck. At the last minute, we have a, a moment. This is this is kind of happily ever after, but it's happily ever after in this world and in, 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 in the hands of these writers who I always thought was one of the best things about their books. It isn't happily ever after. As Raceland's getting to fly off, Caraman runs off and said, let me come with you. That shows that he wasn't over. You know, his that thing inside him where he has to take care of race when it makes him part of one person is still there. And that doesn't bode well for the future. But Raceland responds to it. Quote, Raceland regarded him, his golden, his eyes golden pools within the deep blackness. I truly believe you would go with him, that is. The mage marveled almost to himself. For a moment, Raceland sat upon the dragon's back, pondering. Then he shook his head decisively. No, my brother, where I go, you cannot follow. Strong as you are, it will lead you to your death. We are finally, as a god's menace to be, Caraman, two whole people, and here our paths separate. You must learn to walk yours alone, Caraman. For an instant, a ghostly smile flicker across Raceland's face, illumined by a light from the staff, or with those who might choose to walk with you. Farewell, my brother. At a word from his master, Cyan Bloodbane spread his wings and soared into the air. The gleam of light from the staff seemed like a tiny star amidst the deep blackness of the dragon's wingspan, and then it too winked out, darkness swallowing it early. Um, that's, that's what happened in Sylvanesi, if you'll remember. Um, that is more metaphorical than you would think it is. Raceland's walking away, and he basically told Caraman when he was dying in Sylvanesti, this is as it was meant to be. That's exactly what happened now. Caraman is still bleeding, both literally now because he's injured, but also metaphorically because his he is wounded as a person still. He's not ready to come to terms with this thing. Raceland is. Raceland is who he is and has moved on with his life. Caraman has not, and that's not a good thing. You know, um, in Legends, we will get into this and why it's at one point so terrible. And that series of books is great, as, you know, better than these in their way. You know, these aren't, and I'm not saying these are bad. These are great books. But the Legends series really gets into that and does a masterful job of it. Um, I, I I like this too because they're all of them are reunited now. Lorana, Tannis, uh, Tika, Caraman, and Taz. Um, they're all united on this hill or whatever. Um, the most touching one I think is the reunion of Tika and Lorana. Quote. The elf woman stepped forward into the firelight, her golden hair shining brightly as the sun. Though dressed in blood-stained battered armor, she had the bearing, the regal look of, of the elven priest, Princess Tika had met in Qualnesti so many months ago. Self-consciously, Tika put her hand to her filthy hair, felt it matted with blood. Her white, puffy-sleeved barmaid's blouse hung from her in rags, barely decent. Her mismatched armor was all that held it together in places. Unbecoming scars smarred the move marred the smooth flesh of her shapely legs, and there was far too much shapely leg visible. Lorana smiled, and then Tika smiled. It didn't matter. Coming to her swiftly, Lorana put her arms around her, and Tika held her close. That's beautiful. Um, you remember, Tika was always 
you know, felt very self-conscious and inferior around Lorana, you know, but now it doesn't matter. They're friends and they're reuniting. And that was a beautiful thing. Then we have Tassahoff finally Fizzbands there, you know, um, and we have a nice exchange with them and we finally learn who Fizzband has been the whole time. All of you who've read this know who he is and I don't, you know, those who have not, you know, it probably shouldn't be a shock to you either. All alone, the kinder stood for a moment on the edge of the circle of firelight, his eyes on the old man who stood near it. Behind the old man, a great golden dragon slept sprawled out upon the ridge, his flanks pulsing with his snores. The old man beckoned Tass to come closer. Heaving a sigh that seemed to come from the toes of his shoes, Tess off bowed his head. Dragging his feet, he walked slowly over to stand before the old man. What's my name? The old man asked, reaching out his hand to touch the kinder's top knot of hair. It's not Fizzban, Tass said miserably, refusing to look at him. The old man smiled, stroking the top knot. Then he drew Taz near him, but the kinder held back, his small body rigid. Up until now, it wasn't, the old man said softly. Then what is it, Taz mumbled, his face averted. I have many names, the old man replied. Among the elves, I am Eli. The, elves, the dwarves know me as Thak. Among the humans, I know as Skyblade. But my favorite has always been that by which I am known among the knights of Slamnia, Draco Paladin. I knew it, Taz groaned, flinging himself to the ground. Of God, I've lost everyone, everyone. He began to weep bitterly. The old man regarded him. You know, he's saying he's lost him because he can't be his friend anymore. You know, he's got to go away now, basically. And Taz knows that. The old man regarded him fondly for a moment, even brushing a gnarled hand across his own moist eyes. Then he knelt down beside the kinder and put his arm around him comfortably. Look, my boy, he said, putting his finger beneath Taz's chin and turning his eyes to heaven. Do you see that red star that shines above us? Do you know to what God that star is sacred? Reorks Taz said in a small voice, choking on his tears. It is red like the fires of his forge, the old man said, gazing at it. It is red like the sparks that fly from the fa- hammer as it shapes the molten world resting on his anvil. Beside the fa- forge of Reorks is a tree of surpassing beauty, the like of which no living being has ever seen. Beneath that tree sits a grumbling old dwarf, relaxing after many labors. A mug of cold ale stands beside him. The fires of the forge is warm upon his bones. He spends all day lounging beneath the tree, carving and shaping the wood he loves. And every day someone who comes past that beautiful tree starts to sit down beside him. Looking at them in disgust, the dwarf glowers at them sternly so that they quickly get to their feet again. This place is saved, the dwarf grumbles. There's a lame brain doorknob of a kinder off adventuring somewhere, getting himself and those unfortunate enough to be with him into no end of trouble. Mark my words. One day he'll show up here and he'll admire my tree and he'll say, Flint, I'm tired. I think I'll rest a while with here with you. Then he'll sit down and he'll say, Flint, have you heard about my latest adventure? Well, there was this black robe wizard and his brother and me, and we went on a wonderful journey through time and the most wonderful things happened. And I'll have to listen to some wild, wild tale. And so he grumbles on. Those who would sit beneath the tree hide their smiles and leave him in peace. Then he's not lonely, Taz asked, wiping his hand across his eyes. No, child, he is patient. He knows you have, you have much, yet to do in, much yet to do in your life. He will wait. Besides, he's always heard all your stories. You're going to have to come up with some new ones. He hasn't heard this one yet, Taz said in a dawning excitement. Then what he just said is a preview of the next series of books. Um, the legend series, all that about the black robe mage and going through time and stuff like that. Um, of course, Paladin was a God, I guess, and knew that, but these gods strike me as somewhat, they don't aren't all powerful, you know? So 
I'm sure they can see the future to a certain degree. It's a very complicated thing. And in that series, we will get into it. But I always thought that was kind of awesome. They wrote these books, you know, completely separate. And I guess they were already looking forward to what they were going to do. And part of me wonders if they go back and they went back and rewrote some of the old stuff with Caraman and built him more as a character and Tika more as a character. Cause Raceland was going to be in another series, no matter what, you know, the guys, this archmage, he's so super powerful, but I think they, I feel they might've gone back and, and wrote more to give Caraman more and to build that, that drama, that tension right there. And to show that Caraman's not a whole person yet and to show you that he has still a long way to go and that Tika loves him and is willing to be there with him, you know, but we'll get into that. Um, They talk about, they talk about Raceland and they talk about Fist and Dantilus and Paladine basically said he has his own path to walk talking about Raceland. Quote, what will become of him, of him now, he asked softly. I do not know, Fizban answered. He makes his own fate as do you. But I do know this, Caraman. You must let him go. The old man's, went, old man's eyes went to Tika, who had come to stand beside him. Raceland was right when he said your path had split. Go forward into your new life in peace. Tika smiled up at Caraman and nestled close. He hugged her, kissing her red curls. But even as he returned her smile and tossed her hair, his gaze strayed to the night sky where above Naraka, the dragons still fought their flaming battles for control of the crumbling empire. I always love that. Uh, that thing that they showed that it wasn't over. Um, and then Tannis says, so this is the end, Tannis said. Good has triumphed. Good, triumph. Fizban repeated, turning his stare at the elf, half-elf shrewdly. Not so, half-elven. The balance is restored. The evil dragons will not be banished. They remain here as do the good dragons. Once against the pendulum, once again, the pendulum swings freely. All this suffering just for that, Lorana asked, coming to stand beside Tannis. Why shouldn't good win? Drive the darkness away forever. Haven't you learned anything, young lady? Fizban scolded, shaking a bowing finger at her. There was a time when good held sway. Do you know when that was? Right before the cataclysm. Yes, he continued, seeing their astonishment. The king priest of Istar was a good man. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't, because both of you have seen what goodness like that can do. This is where they're getting down to the meat of thing, why the cataclysm and all that stuff had to happen in the first place. The whole thing that Tannis and Goldmoon have been asking the whole time. You've seen it in the elves, the ancient embodiment of good. It breeds intolerance, rigidity, and belief that I, because I am right, those who don't believe as I do are wrong. We gods saw the danger this complacency was bringing upon the world. We saw that much good was being destroyed simply because it wasn't understood, and we saw the dark queen of darkness lying in wait, biding her time, for this could not last, of course. The overweighted scales must tip and fall, and then she would return. Darkness would descend upon the world very fast. And so the cataclysm. We grieve for the innocent. We grieve for the guilty. But the world had to be prepared, or the darkness that fell might never have been lifted. Fizban saw Tassoff yawn, but enough lectures. I've got to go. Things to do busy night ahead turning away abruptly he trotted toward the snoring golden dragon <laughs> i love this part um the old man at the beginning of the story who started the whole thing was not fizban but it turns out it, it actually was it was paladine the whole time who started the whole he knew what had to set things in motion to start this um then 
he's back to being Fizban again, and he says he actually tells um, that he likes the name Fizban now, and he's taking off on the dragon. He says, "I've lost my hat," and then um, Tasselhoff, of course, tells him, "It's on your head. You haven't lost it." You know, it's that good moment where it's a. I've always I've always liked the character Fizban a lot. Then all the um, all the the companions are deciding where they're going to go, um, and they're all having a discussion. Here's one of my favorite parts I highlighted. They asked Taz if they're going to go back to Calaman with them. Taz flushed. No, Tannis, he said uncomfortably. You see, since I'm this close, I thought I'd pay a visit to my homeland. We killed a dragon highlord, Tannis. Taz lifted his chin proudly. All by ourselves. People will treat us with respect now. Our leader, Cronin, will most likely become a hero in Krennish lore. Tannis scratched his beard to hide his smile, refraining from tell- telling Taz that the highlord the Kenders had killed had been the bloated, cowardly Fewmaster Toad. I think one Kender will become a hero. Laurent said seriously. He will be the kinder who broke the dragon orb, the kinder who fought at the siege of the high class tower, high class tower, the kinder who captured Bacaris, the kinder who risked everything to rescue a friend from the Queen of Darkness. Who's that? Taz asked eagerly. Then, oh, suddenly realizing who Laurent meant, Taz flushed pink to the tips of his ears and sat down with a thud quite overcome. And then we have a good moment um, between Laurent and Tannis. Quote, Lorana, Tennyson, unsteadily, his voice faltering as her beautiful face turned to his. Lorana, he gave this to me once. He held the golden ring in his palm. Before either of us knew what true love or commitment meant. I know it now means a great deal to me, Lorana. In the dream, this ring brought me back from the darkness of the nightmare, just as your love saved me from the darkness in my own soul. He paused, feeling a sharp pang of regret even as he talked. I'd like to keep it, Lorana, if you still want me to have it. And I would like to, you, like to give you one to wear to match it. Lorana stared at the ring long moments without speaking, then she lifted it from Tannis's palm and, with a sudden motion, threw it over the ridge. Tannis gasped, half starting to his feet. The ring flashed in Lunatari's red light, then it vanished into the darkness. I guess that's my answer, Tannis said. I can't blame you. Lorana turned back to him, her face calm. When I gave you that ring, Tannis, it was the first love and undisciplined heart. You were right to return it to me. I see that now. I had to grow up to learn what real love was. I have been through flame and darkness, Tannis. I have killed dragons. I have wept over the body of one I loved. She sighed. I was a leader. I had responsibilities. Flint told me that, but I threw it all away. I fell into Kittyar's trap. I realized too late how shallow my love really was. River winds and gold moon steadfast love brought hope for the world. Our petty love came near to destroying it. Lorana Tannis began, his heart aching. Her hand closed over his. Hush, just a moment more, she whispered. I love you, Tannis. I love you now because I understand you. I love you for the light and the darkness within you. That is why I threw the ring away. Perhaps someday our love will be a foundation strong enough to build upon. Perhaps someday I will give you another ring and I will accept yours, but it will not be a ring of Ivy Lee's Tannis. No, he said, smiling. Reaching out, he put his hand on her shoulder, draw her near. Shaking her head, she started to resist. It will be a ring made half of gold and half of steel. Tannis clasped her more firmly. Lorana looked into his eyes, then she smiled and yielded to him, sinking back to rest beside him, her head on his shoulder. Perhaps I'll shave, said Tannis, scratching his beard. Don't, murmured Lorana, drawing Tannis's cloak around her shoulder. I've gotten used to it. All that night, the companions kept watch together beneath the trees, waiting for the dawn. Weary and wounded, they could not sleep. They knew the danger had not ended. From their vantage point, they could see 
bands of draconians fleeing the temple confines. Freed from their leaders, the draconians would soon turn to Robbie and murder to ensure their own survival. There were dragon highlords still, though no one mentioned her name. The commandians knew each one almost certainly managed to survive the chaos boiling around the temple. Perhaps there would be other evils to contend with. Evils more powerful and terrifying than the friends dared imagine. Um, one thing that I didn't mention, you know, and, and had it highlighted and I was going to discuss it is, um, in the thing with race on Caraman says he's going to return to solace too, and try to build a life there. And he says something that's kind of chilling when, when you think about it, he says, people need me there. I need to be needed. That's not really a healthy thing, you know, but, um, you know, it does lead into the next thing. Um, as they're leaving, um, they look into the into uh, into the sky, and uh, I'll read that part. Quote: Their eyes da- dazzled by the flaring light, they could not see clearly, but they had the impression that the sparkling shards of the temple. This is after the queen of the the temple of Tikis has exploded was rising into the sky, being swept upward by a vast heavenly wind. Brighter and brighter, the shards gleamed as they hurtled into the starry darkness until they shone as radiantly as the stars themselves. And then there were stars. One by one, each piece of the shattered temple took its proper place in the sky, filling the two black voids Raisel had seen last autumn when he looked up from the boat in Crystal Motor Lake. Once again, the constellations glittered in the sky. Once again, the valiant warrior Paladine, the Platinum Dragon, took his place in one half of the night sky, while opposite him appeared the Queen of Darkness, Tachesis, the five-headed melancholy dragon. And so they resumed their endless wheeling, one always watchful of the other, as they revolved eternally around Gillian, god of neutral, neutrality, the scales of balance. That is really, again, the essence of the whole thing, right? Um, I have one more thing to read, and then I'm going to discuss, uh, if my producer doesn't mind, it take a little bit longer for me to do this. Um, I'm going to discuss what I think about the whole, the Chronicles as a whole. So let me read this one thing. Um, it's called The Homecoming. And it's a little bit long, but let's uh, let's go to forward to the bitter end. There were one to welcome him as he entered the city. He came in the dead of a still black night, the only moon in the sky being one his eyes alone could see. He had sent away the green dragon to await his commands. He did not pass through the city gates. No guard witnessed his arrival. He had no need to come through the gates. Boundaries meant for ordinary mortals no longer concerned him. Unseen, unknown, he walked the silent, sleeping streets. Yet there was one who was aware of his presence. Inside the great lab- library, Astinus, antenna as ever upon his word, work, stopped writing and lifting his head. His pen remained poised for an instant over the paper. Then, with a shrug, he resumed work on his chronicles once more. The man walked back, walked the streets rapidly, leaning upon a staff that was decorated at the top of a crystal ball clutched, clutched in the golden, disembodied claw of a dragon. The crystal was dark. He needed no light to brighten the way. He knew where he was going. He had walked in in his mind for long centuries. Black robes rustled softly around his ankles as he strode forward. His golden eyes, gleaming from the depths of his black hood, seemed the only sparks of light in the slumbering city. He did not stop when he reached the center of town. He did not even glance at the abandoned buildings with their dark windows, gaping like eye sockets in a skull. His steps did not falter as he paused among the chill shadows of the tall oak trees, though these shadows alone had been enough to ter- terrify the kinder. 
The flashless guarding hands that reached out to grasp him fell to dust at his feet, and he trod upon them without care. The tall tower came in sight, black against the black sky like a window cut into darkness, and here, finally, the black-robed man came to a halt. Standing before the gates, he looked up at the tower, his eyes taking in everything, coolly appraising the crumbling minarets and the polished marble that glistened in the cold, piercing light of the stars. He nodded slowly in satisfaction. The golden eyes lowered the gaze to the gates of the tower, to the horrible fluttering robes that hung from those gates. No ordinary mortal could have stood before those terrible shrouded gates without going mad from the nameless terror. No ordinary mortal could have walked unscathed through the guardian oaks, but Racewind stood there. He stood there calmly, without fear. Lifting his thin hand, he grabbed hold of the shredded black robes, still stained with the blood of their wearer, and tore them from the gates. A chill, penetrating wail of outrage screamed up from the adepts of the abyss. So loud and horrifying was it that all the citizens of Palanthus woke shuddering from even the deepest sleep and lay in their beds, paralyzed by fear, waiting for the end of the world. The guards on the city walls could neither move hand nor foot, shutting their eyes, they cowered in shadows, awaiting death. Babies whimpered in fear. Dogs cringed and slunk beneath, slunk beneath beds. Cat's eyes gleamed. The shriek sounded again, and a pale hand reached out from the tower gates. A ghastly face, twisted in fury, floated in the dank air. Rayson did not move. The hand drew near. The face promised him the tortures of the abyss, where he would be dra- dragged for his own great folly in daring the curse of the tower. The skeletal hand touched Rayson's heart, then trembling, it halted. Know this, Rayson said calmly, looking up at the tower, pitching his voice so it could be heard by those within. I am the master of past and present. My coming was foretold. For me, the gates will open. The skeletal hand shrank back, and with a slow sweeping motion of invitation part of the darkness the gates swung open upon silent hinges Raceland passed through them without a glance at the hand or the pale visage that was lowered in reverence as he entered all the black and shapeless dark and shadowy things dwelling within the tower bowed in homage then Raceland stopped and looked around him i am home he said peace stole over palanthus sleep soothed the way fear a dream the people murmured turning over in their beds they drifted back into slumber blessed by the darkness which brings rest before dawn Pretty powerful passage right there that sets up next series of books. I had a lot, you know, I had a lot of fun with this. It's been a learning experience for me. Um, This episode had rocky parts as all of them did, but I felt like overall was, it was good. Um, And now at the end, I'd like to share some thoughts I have about this series of books. The Dragonlance Chronicles are perfect in their imperfection. They, as we've discussed before, they're not Tolkien. They're not Lord of the. They're not uh, Game of Thrones. They're not. They're not Ted Williams. They're not any of these high fantasies. But in their own way, they're every bit as good. They're not as long. They don't have so much staggering complexity and all those things. But there is something about the Chronicles that sets them apart, and something that is even more in evidence in the Legend series. And that's the the warmth with which they're written, and the. Their characterizations, I would dare say that their characterizations are every bit as good and better than most people in the high fantasy field. Um, yes, you know, one can argue that, you know, it reads like a like a Dragonlance module. Well, it kind of was. I mean, ever since, you know, especially since that gentleman on my on my Reddit suggest, told me that, you know, it does make sense. And I kind of struggled with that for a minute, honestly. I, I kind of felt... Like, well, does that make them less? And then I thought about what these books did for me and what I hope they did for everybody else. For me, the Dragonlance Chronicles were the first real fantasy that I ever read. Um, 
that's that's why I started with them. I kind of feel bad that I started with them now because I think that later on my shows will be better, and I might want to revisit them sometime. But this was this was a big project. It's four you know four four parts per book, you know, trying to get as much detail and you know breathe as much as I can into it. Um, but I really believe that for a lot of us, you know, of my age who got into fantasy and stuff like that, and we're looking for an escape. I think that Dragonlance Chronicles was the was the perfect opening into fantasy for all of us. And I believe it planted the seed that grew into this huge love for this genre and grew into other things, science fiction being one of them. You know, even just reading other things that aren't fantasy. You know, it just it's it began a love of reading in general too, um, and their artwork and and all the things. And um, I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope that. Uh, you will join me again. I the next project we will be doing is likely going to be the Dark Elf trilogy, and we will get into one of the most famous, but oddly not famous characters in all of fantasy. But I want to thank you for joining me with this, and I hope to see you on the next show. Mm-hmm.